0: Hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 126. Thanks so much for joining me on your Sunday morning or afternoon or evening, wherever you are. Today's guest is Grant Quackenwush, who will be here in about 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and we know you do too, so please do click on the like button and share and subscribe. Make sure you ring the bell for notifications, whatever you can do to help it spread around the internet. Please help us out by doing that. Now, we'd like to start with uh, Poet Respond and talk about today's poem, and um, today's poet was Avery Gregorich with There I Was. Let's give uh, Avery a call. Hey Avery, this is Tim with Rattle. You are live on the air. How are you doing?
1: Hi Tim. Good morning. Uh, how's your uh, Sunday starting out so far? Uh, a
0: bit of a rush getting the show started, but we're good to go now. So, uh, so your poem today, "There I Was," um, just an excellent look back at um, at the event of last year, last January sixth. And one of the things that I love about you know being able to publish poems and what poetry can do is be a chronicle of the time. And I thought this poem just did such a great job of capturing, you know, the experience of that day from around the country, from wherever wherever you're located. Do you want to explain a little bit about why you wrote the poem and and what was going on?
1: Well, thanks for those kind of words. Well, I I appreciate it. Uh I would say uh what I wanted to start with the poem was uh, this phrase I was there, which is a phrase that really happened um during this last uh, few days of remembrances. People were kind of um, speaking about where they were at the time. Um, and there was also the prolifer- proliferation afterward. the fact of people uh, posting on very social media accounts that they were there and being proud of that fact. And I kind of wanted to play with that phrase to start with. So that's, I kind of inverted that and wanted to go that dire- that direction. But um, yeah, so from there on, I, I had some words written down from last year. I never got around to sort of writing about it because I didn't have, have the, the words to say at the time. But um, thinking about uh, being in this, participatory uh, the realm of the retail store where you're sort of waiting around for things to happen to you um, made me want to kind of say, where was I when this actually happened? And uh, how did the event come to us here uh, in the retail world, uh, at least? So that's kind of where the poem grew from.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that 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 was like a trending thing to say, you know, I was there and, and talk about that. I hadn't heard that. Um, yeah, it, it seemed to
1: be like a you know on T-shirts and stuff, and people were uh, you know saying I was there. And, you know, and they had of course they had pictures and videos of themselves there too. So um, I, I I wanted to know what that was like for people to be proud of that moment, and then uh, even a year later, sort of. That way too. I, I don't really understand that yet, so I'm not <laughs> sure of us do.
0: Yeah, well, well, not understanding is the perfect place to write a poem from. I think uh, it, it's interesting because yeah. I was, um, I, I felt very, even though I, I wasn't working in a grocery store that day, um, January sixth last year happened to be the day we go. I go grocery shopping in the morning, and. Um, sure. And so I was in a grocery store and I knew this was yeah. going to be happening because I have, you know, I know I, you know, have heard about this and for about a month ahead people knew there was going to be a big protest going on. And um and if um you watch on like Twitch and some other platforms, you can see like tons of live streams all at once. And so I kind of rushed home after the morning grocery shopping um to catch what was whatever was going on in the live streams. And I remember at first nothing was going on and I thought, oh well, well this turned out to be nothing. And then little did I know Uh, about an hour later it just turned into something so um
1: yeah i usually i usually work the second shift so this would have been two or three o'clock and i think that's when things really started happening uh uh, i don't know officially or whatever you want to say but uh that's when i I would say people started having their phones on them as they were shopping as they often do but they were out and uh people were sort of uh i don't know looking at each other a little differently at that time so yeah i definitely remember that for sure
0: yeah well why don't you go ahead and read it this is uh there i was go ahead
1: Uh, there I was. There I was in the middle of the frozen food aisle by the breakfast items, putting something on the shelf behind the woman live-streaming the insurrection on her phone. It was loud, and I saw her smile fight against the loops of the mask, chin-strapped beneath her teeth. She was watching the ones who had shown up in her place. The rest of us had to hear that sound and try to imagine the rest. I'd been watching the militia grow for months from my post behind the checkout counter, how quickly the uniforms were sewn. The stars and stripes had changed colors with the seasons until finally in winter falling into darkness it's bad out there the nurse who worked at the grocery store to get cheaper in health insurance had said though it wasn't clear what she was talking about shopping each aisle with care she continued to tune in throughout the payment process after she left it got quiet again very few shopped the rest of the night and those that did offered us cryptic updates sometimes photos of smoke billowing once a noose i remember most of them buying canned goods Driving home on the phone with my brother, he said, I never saw this coming, did you? It's been so long now, hearing the bells ringing, that I believe I forgot what they used to mean.
0: Yeah, and that was just a great last line. Can you say anything about about where that last line came from? That was kind of the thing that sold the poem for me, was the the, the leap you take there.
1: Yeah, Um, I I just, I don't know. I I want to say that it's, uh, I wanted to have something musical where we're all sort of listening to, uh the sound but we can't agree on what what the sound is right mm-hmm. um and for me, for me the bell is sort of a, a one note uh each bell has its own note so we're all sort of hearing the same bell ringing but we're all responding to it in such vastly different ways um and i i think i've mentioned it in the note about living in several realities and i really think that that's uh unfortunately where where we are at this current moment where we're not sure i see it every day here at the store and uh, that's where i'm at right now i'm talking to you on the telephone oh, in the really? parking lot. but uh, so, so yeah, I just I, I've noticed things change that way, and I, I I feel like we're all getting the same same bell ringing, but uh, we're all listening in a different way. I guess is kind of where I wanted to end up with that.
0: Yeah, well, that was one of those great, just poetic leaps. I think that captures it perfectly, and um, yeah. and, and so thanks for writing and sharing this poem. It's really excellent, Avery.
1: I appreciate it, Tim. Uh, thanks for the time, and and have a good rest of your your broadcast. Yeah, take care. You too. All right, take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Yeah, so that was uh, Avery Grigorich with There I Was. And let's go, we have a second poem this week, too. And this is on Zebulon Husset. The moon is covered in rabbits and trash. So let's talk to the second uh, the second poet. This is going to be a Tuesday bonus poem coming up. So this will be previewed here on Poets Respond. Hello? Hey, Zebulon, this is uh, Tim with Rattle. You are live on the air. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so let's talk a little bit about what what this poem is about, because it's an interesting story I hadn't heard. And I feel like um, it's sort of unusual um, at this point. Maybe it happened more often in the past where I don't know, I hadn't heard a story before it comes across the desk um, in the poet response submissions. But this was one of those I was completely unaware of. Can you talk a little bit about what what inspired the poem?
2: Yeah, the um you know I was taken by um it was quite a few years back in uh like 2014 when the first Jade Rabbit rover um the Chinese rover was going around the moon and it had like a social media account um and they were putting out all kinds of like cutesy messages about like what it was seeing and what it was uh, going to do and then it started failing and it's you know it wasn't sure it went offline for a while um and then it had that really you know funny funnily sad message um, about how it was actually it was going to be going out of commission and because it had been you know personified so much it was it was actually pretty sad and there was a kind of an outpouring across social media um, in um, sympathy for that for the rover the little robot. Um, so I had that in the back of my mind, um, along with the uh, just the fact that there apparently there is a whole lot of garbage on the moon because it costs so much to take things back mm-hmm. from the moon that they end up just leaving a lot of stuff there. Um, there's actually a proposed uh, project to go and do a little bit of cleanup sometime in the near future. Um, but then uh, just recently, the, the new rover um, had seen a little square on the, on the horizon of uh, one of its images and people would speculate oh it's it's very square you know it's unusually square um and of course most people were you know rational buttons like well it's a low resolution camera so you know it's probably not actually mm-hmm. square it's just something sticking above the horizon a little bit um but because the rover takes so long to move up there um it was like two weeks i think from the first sighting until it actually got there um so there was a lot of time for speculation and a lot of sensationalist news little you know um news stories especially on websites um talking about it and so i was kind of keeping my eye out to see you know hey maybe maybe it's something it's probably nothing um but then of course it you know it ended up being nothing but (laughs) as most things are but it's always fun to you know speculate and to be curious about things um and then, yeah, and they, I thought it was, in, it was really funny that they also they named that also Jade Rabbit. So we had you know three Jade Rabbits on the moon.
0: Uh huh. Yeah, just really interesting story. And I'm sure uh, somewhere, what's that guy? Richard C. Hoagland was having a field day over uh, over you know, the face on the Mars guy. But I somehow I missed all this, which is really fun. You know, it's it's there's so few stories these days that are fun, and you know, speculating yeah. about uh, uh, Moon Hut is a, is a fun story, <laughs> um, even though you know it goes into um, you know all the garbage and 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 how we can't even keep the moon clean. Um, <laughs> but uh, why don't you go ahead and read and read the poem? Okay,
2: certainly. So uh, it's called "The Moon is Covered in Rabbits and Trash." This time it really is good night. There are still so many questions I would like answers to, but I'm the rabbit that has seen the most stars. The moon has prepared a long dream for me. I don't know what it will be like. Will I be a Mars explorer or be sent back to Earth? U2, Rover, February 2014. For weeks, we had an intriguing mystery, a perfect cube popping over the horizon of the moon, a moon hut, they called it. They, not being nerds, a.k.a. scientists, but the cool kids publishing their words on websites world round. And we all knew it was clickbait. It was wishful thinking, not even propaganda, like a waving flag where there's no wind, but there actually is the reverberations of a pole jostled as it was propped up by a man in a bulky suit. We knew, knew it was just a rock. Spoiler, it was. But that didn't stop us from clicking and providing sweet, sweet ad revenue and our personal browsing history via cookies embedded in our computers. Our super secret spy on the moon was u 22 younger brother of the original Jade Rabbit rover, U2, social media sensation and part-time Chinese moon rover that enthralled us with its cute messages, which were totally not just an advertising agency putting an adorable face on its usually bland scientific announcements until we were unknowingly hooked and then heartbroken When it finally faltered and we marveled as the stargazing bunny gave us a tear-filled goodbye. Its successor spied the hut and again enthralled us all. Now, no one posited it was one of the six lunar modules NASA landed or crashed and left on the moon's surface. Those monuments, trash, were well plotted and in some cases surrounded by bags of frozen urine and feces and packaging too costly to retrieve from the moon. Not to mention all of the machinery that died or was abandoned, like the aforementioned jade rabbit. So when the second jade rabbit slow-rolled its way closer to the hut, it was, surprise, surprise, a rock. Oblong, not quite round, and not even enormous, just big enough to blip the lip of a crater enough for the low-resolution camera to pixelate it. It was also dubbed Jade Rabbit because, why not? We have enough unnamed rocks.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for that. That was uh, the moon is covered in rabbits and trash, and and um, Zebulon, you have. Um... A lot of projects going on we mentioned, and one of them is a new literary journal. Do you want to mention that? Um, Coastal Shelf. Do you want to explain just while you're here, because, um, you know, our viewers are always listening, looking for new places to submit. Do you want to talk a little bit about your journal?
2: Certainly. Um, yeah, Coastal Shelf is a journal. It's, I started it um, in 2020. Um, well, I started accepting uh, submissions in 2020, and I had my first issue at the end of it. Um, and not, we're just about to do um, our sixth issue is going live later in this month, as well as a little um, one calling an annual um, because I'm doing them quarterly. But then also um, we've gotten so many great pieces that it was hard to um, to say no to, to quite a few of them. So, but we only had so much space because I determined I didn't want anything to get lost. So I, I set kind of a, a pretty rigid limit on how many pieces per quarterly issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, so but unfortunately, also, when I started the journal, I had a lot more free time. I was uh, working as a freelance photographer at the time, and so I uh, wanted to give feedback to as many people as possible. Um, and that um, was was great at first. Um, but then this last year, I got a job as a uh, ninth grade English teacher. Mm -hmm. and so I had to move I moved across the country in less than a month and got set up I was in a a extended stay hotel for actually like uh, three months almost at the beginning trying to find a place to live Um, and we finally got into a place but because of all of this it's really kind of put us a little behind on the reading Uh, we were intending to open up for submissions again in January but we're pushing that back to March Mm -hmm. so that way we can get caught up because I have a a very small staff of volunteers Um, and we also read um, uh, free submissions so uh, we, oh, we yeah. Uh, yeah both for our, our journal and also we had uh, two contests this mm-hmm. last summer um, and we accepted free submissions as well as uh, small paid submissions mm-hmm. um, and that was in our all of those prize winners are in our fifth issue we're going to be doing that again in April um, and hopefully to facilitate that we're doing our first little um, online workshop for a, a small fee that we hopefully can help um, you know, pay for the, prize, the prizes. Because I really want as many people as possible to be able to submit. And I know that the, from personal experience, especially soon after grad school, that um, having submission fees can, can really stop a lot of people from getting the work out there. So we want to do that as much as possible, You know, try to get as many people um, involved as we can.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. I mean, the the barrier that submission fees make, you know, economically, they really add up, you know, which is why um, it's really important to have at least some places that don't have submission fees so that they can be open to everybody. Um, is there anything about the editorial vision of um, Coastal Shelf that you can share? Like, is, what are you, kind of poems are you looking for?
2: You know, we really like um, poems that have something to say that... Um, they have something that you can come away from the poem and think about that you can remember. Um, we call it, um, like the, like the, it has to have, uh, we don't, we don't like put it when, when we give our feedback, of course we don't use these terms, but the kind of the, uh, so what am I remembering from this sort of, uh, factor? Um, what is it that the poet is saying? Um, Mm -hmm. and then also our contest, we, it was called the FUPO poetry contest, the funny and poignant, uh-huh. And we, that kind of extends uh, through through our vision in general. I mean, obviously, not not everything has to be funny, but it should ideally either be one or the other, and it shouldn't. We try to avoid anything too like uh, too light.
0: Mm-hmm. And oh, we do yeah.
2: uh, fiction. Oh, okay.
0: oh no, yeah. I was just gonna keep keep going. What were you saying?
2: Oh, I was just saying we we do fiction as well, ah, okay. uh, we tend to lean towards shorter pieces. But this um, new issue that we're working on actually has two pieces that are over five thousand words. So. As a, a departure. And the other contest we do is actually we, uh, the first feeling 200, which was 200 words or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year we're doing 250. We get uh-huh. it a little bit more room.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing this. Um, it's CoastalShelf.com for anybody who wants to check out issues one through five and uh, submit some poems when they open up again. Uh, thanks so much for joining us and for sharing this great Thank poem, too. I well. really loved it.
2: Oh, thanks so much. And if you don't mind, I also I run one other small journal that um, I actually—it's uh, only for pieces that are sparked by um, uh, writing prompts that are online at oh, uh, uh-huh. various uh, sites online that publish writing prompts. That's called Sparked Literary Magazine. Oh, what's the um, URL? What's the
0: URL? for that? URL for that?
2: Uh, that's sparkedlitmag.com. Okay, sparkedlitmag. Yeah, that one
0: okay.
2: works. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that one we're working on. Um, yeah, I, Unfortunately, because of my time restrictions, it was monthly, but now it's gone to quarterly. So we have our winter issue that's going to be coming out in the next uh, about a month from now.
0: Yeah, very cool. So this is a I mean, we have a prompt at the end of every episode. So um, when submissions are open there, you could submit uh, your prompt poems to Sparked, I assume, right?
2: hundred percent. We've actually published a couple of Rattlecast poems, as well as quite a few um, ekphrastic, uh, ekphrastic Challenge ones, pe- ones that were originally written for you guys. And then um, because, you know, obviously, so limited space and so many people writing poems, I, I like the idea of having um, additional homes for pieces that are sparked for a specific cause.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, very cool. I hope everybody checks out both of these. what is uh, sparked, sparked, like past tense, sparkedlitmag.com. Yeah. But yeah, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. Yep. Have a great day. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so that was uh, that was Zebulon. He said, "With um, the moon is covered in rabbits and trash." A great title, too. In addition to a very interesting poem. Now we're going to take a quick break. We're going to go to today's featured guest, Grant Quackenbush. So I will uh, put up some music, and we will be right back. And we're back, but we're having some technical difficulties, so bear with us a little bit. Let me, uh, you know, Grant's got uh, some feedback issue going on that we can't uh, figure out that wasn't in the test call. So he's really echoey. So he's going to try to figure that out. I'm going to go back to him probably about 10 minutes from now. But let's, in the meantime, um, let's do a random poem. Um, this is, uh, I just pushed the random button, and we came up with a February, well, wow, that's too recently. That was just last year. Let's do a more, an older random button poem. Okay, here's an older one. This is uh, February 13th, 2010, from rattle number 31. This is Ian Williams, Hero. There's a poem uh, from the uh, tribute to African American poets that we did in that issue. Let's give this a play while we uh, see if we can.
3: Hero. The hero wins, because that's what heroes do when you spend the money to buy the DVD of a movie you already know the ending to. Not because you've seen it before, but because you heard from a colleague in HR that it would make you feel real good after. It was the best thing she's seen lately, and that's with her being married, and every morning pushing spoons into the faces of her two children. So you watch it, Knowing the only thing that will make you feel good this evening is seeing a bare-chested man wail on another in a ring and another in a street and another in a ring in slow-mo and the doof-doof sounds of the glove-striking bodies in movies which don't sound like bodies for real. Not that you'd admit to knowing that. And the hero doesn't even look like heroes in the real world, which are not the heroes in grade-four essays either but like, stay with me. This one time, you dropped by a woman's place, and you were sitting at her kitchen table, and she asked you if you wanted anything to drink, and she opened the fridge, and you saw through the crack between her body and the door only a pitcher of water on the wire shelf in the yellow light. You want to call her a hero, because she's surviving with her mouth shut. Or yourself, because you're so affected, must mean you're noble. Go ahead, but there are other words for you too.
0: And that was a poem from uh, round Number 31 by Ian Williams, Hero. And I'm not sure. So so if you uh we're still trying to get in touch with Grant. Um and um we'll see if uh maybe we'll do another poem. I want to give him enough time to get try to get that thing settled out. So let's uh let's try another another poem. Here is um man, every time I push the random button, it keeps being uh, poems from just this year. I want to go back farther in time. Here we go to another longer poem. This is Protho Serrano with Love of Distance. And this was from rattle number 27. So um, I'll read her note, too. I probably should have read the last note. This is uh, Partho Serrano's note. When I first read that so much depended on a red wheelbarrow beside the white chickens, I breathed a sigh of relief. My inner whisperer seemed to know this kind of thing, but I had always felt her murmurings to be of no use. Now I could scramble through an odd labyrinth, labyrinth of life hoops psychologist, cab driver, head cook, single parent, house cleaner, palmist, phys ed teacher, poet in the schools, but with someone I could trust inside. She's the one who writes my poems. So it's a great note by Prothor Serrano. And here's her poem, Love of Distance, from rattle number 27. He's enchanted with the idea of reaching through space, wants me to wait by the window while he climbs the far-off mountain, sets up the light, flashes something back in Morse code. He says we should begin studying our dots and dashes, along with smoke signals, the extravagantly long rolled R's of Spanish, hand gestures of the deaf. Or we could take the rim trail, one of us staying on the southern lip, while the other heads north till our bodies shrink to the size of tree frogs. Then we can converse across the canyon without effort, no need to raise our voices. He is certain this will work, that the atmosphere at these heights will bear our words with a clarity as yet unknown to us. My faith in these things is weaker. I dare not tell him the far eastern stories, the one where the poet builds two houses on opposite shores of the lake, gives one to his sweetheart, who he tells to go in, take up dulcimer or needlework, learn to love the lonely ways. Think of the surprise, he says. One of our faces suddenly shining Between the black birds and reeds And that was uh, Love of Distance By Proartho Sereno From medal number 27 um, Let's see So the uh, good stuff here And we'll try to get Grant back let's try, I'm going to go back to break again We'll see if we can get Grant this time Okay. So let's do that And we're back. Thanks everybody for your patience. A little extra. We had some technical difficulties. I'm not sure as I was flipping through mutes and and trying to fix different things that how much you heard about my explanation for what was going on, but we were trying to get a we had an echo going that we couldn't figure out, which we finally did. So um, we're back, and let's get with Grant Quackenbush. Grant Quackenbush grew up skateboarding in San Diego. He received his MFA from Boston University and his BA from the University of California, Santa Cruz. His poems have appeared in Rattle number 69, 73, and The Aquastic Challenge. And his first book, Off Topic, was just published by, um, um, by um, Pinion Publishing is the name of the publisher. And um, you can find it at pinion-publishing.com. But here he is, finally, <laughs> Grant Quackenbush. Hey, Hi. Grant, how you doing?
4: Doing well. Oh my goodness, what a uh, what a start! It was so good last night when we did the test run, but oh well.
0: Yeah. So I th- th- I learned. Um. You know, we figured out what happened, which was that we had, and it might be because I switched to using the meat version a few you know a few uh, a few episodes back, and somehow that let you be logged in twice on the same call. It was weird, but anyway, we got it all settled, and um, I'm so glad to have you as a guest today. Um, a really interesting book here. Off topic. Do you want to start out by reading a poem?
4: Sure. Yeah, and uh, I was gonna actually ask you last night, but I forgot to do it. Uh, it's a little bit of a flex, but I was gonna say that uh, Opinion Publishing nominated Off Topic for a, a CLMP Firecracker Award. If you're ah, familiar cool. with that, uh-huh. yeah. So I'm pre- I'm pretty stoked about that. Okay, uh, cool. Whether Congrats it will be a finalist or not, probably not. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I'll start off with Houseplant. plant. Um, okay it's actually the first poem in the book okay here it is houseplant i water my ficus with milk it grows a mouth sharp teeth it yells at me asshole it shouts put some miracle growing here put me in a bigger pot i do and give it more milk i feed it meatloaf bacon porterhouse steak its roots branch out the bottom and break into legs two twigs into muscular arms it sprouts a monstrous cock Hikes its potted up like a soiled diaper, smokes bud, walks around, does finger push-ups on the ground. It opens my wallet, removes a 20, dons my leather jacket. When I rush to stop it, it shoves me. Kick his ass, my wife says to the ficus. She laughs, spreads her legs, says, come here with her middle finger. The ficus grins. It enters the bedroom. It plants in her its seed. Uh, <laughs> it was a little bit awkward reading that because my niece is like 12 years old and just was walking through the room just now. Oh really? Yeah, but I couldn't stop mid poem. Um,
0: yeah, we had uh, we used to do readings at the uh, at the bookstore and there was a children's section like not too far away. And forever there was no you know after hundreds of of readings, there was never a problem. But then there was one poem where there was like somebody shouting in a fight on the subway and i i won't even say what was said but the poem required the poet to be shouting you know profanities and um you know so that happens sometimes and the, and then that was a bad situation so it happens with poetry sometimes um so so the thing that um is really interesting your your um your poem that we published which appeared on rattle last week um was about it claims to be the last poem you ever write and um i don't know if that's going to so be far. true or not so so let's start out before we get into that maybe um how did you get into publishing and and i think this is like a a story of like disillusionment or something but why did you get into poetry and and is it really the last poem you'll ever write
4: disillusionment's an interesting word before i answer that what do you mean by that you mean my story is a story of disillusionment like the story of off topic
0: yeah i think so it feels kind of like that like um um or at least the, you know, the the conclusion of that, the alphabet city sequence. Um, Yeah. You know, so, so what was it, you know, what was it that got you into writing poetry in the first place? Let's start there and then we'll talk about the the journey.
4: Okay. Yeah. Um, So I majored in philosophy, graduated when I was 23 and I couldn't get a job after I was bicycling 10 miles to work 10 miles back, barely making any money, 10 bucks an hour, um, maybe less at the time. And, um, it was just such a grind, uh, uh, to avoid paying back student loans. I ended up going to this, uh, master's program that I couldn't stand. It was for, uh, TESOL actually, uh, which stands for teaching English to speakers of other languages. Um, I really just did it to avoid the, um, situation I was in at the time. I was like sleeping on the floor in the living room. It was pretty crappy. Um, but I, I quit after a semester, came back and, um, To Basically, to avoid paying back student loans, I took a uh, junior college, a couple of junior college classes. You have to take six credits. You have to be half time. Uh, One of them was creative writing. I just think the easiest thing I thought, you know, um, or the thing I thought would be easiest. Uh, But, um, you know, of course, I was already naturally inclined to reading and writing through philosophy. Mm -hmm. And when it came time to do the poetry portion of the class, I um, gravitated naturally toward Toward that strongly. Um, It was no question in my mind that that's what um, I now thought I should be doing. Mm -hmm. And I was filled with purpose and hope and all these things, which I talk about in my uh, double absidarium, A Brief History of My Life, Zero to 30. Um, I talk briefly about that. Um, And then so. My teacher told me about the existence of MFA programs and how you could go for free um, and get paid to write poetry. And I was like, what? This exists? No way. And so um, I applied that fall after having written poetry for like a month and of course got rejected everywhere. Uh, The next year I reapplied. Um, I kept taking literature classes. I kept taking creative writing classes like obsessively, writing obsessively for the next year and got in everywhere I applied to. Hmm. Um, But I ended up choosing... Sorry, this is long. Should I keep going?
0: No, yeah, go. Yeah, tell the story.
4: Okay, this is a story. Um, uh, I ultimately narrowed it down to University of Oregon, Boston University, and UC Irvine. I chose UC Irvine because it was close to where I lived in San Diego. I was just an hour up the coast. I, I had never been to the East Coast or anything like that. So, and they were. Um, it was actually the first MFA program I'd ever heard of, probably because I lived in SoCal. Um, and so to me, it was like, "Wow, well, I have to go to UC Irvine. Michael Ryan and Amy Gerstler taught there, um, who, are, who are poets I'd read. Um, and then I'll fast forward kind of quickly through the rest. Basically, I ended up dropping out of UC Irvine. They didn't like that program. And this was during the uh, you know, Trump election and stuff like that. So, And we could talk more about that. And it was a very... A volatile atmosphere it wasn't uh, didn't really felt like i couldn't write what i wanted to write so uh and there were some very woke people that i just really couldn't stand in the program so dropped out i thought i would never go back to an mfa program again ended up moving to the east coast um by chance uh to new york city uh when i was there i figured i would reapply to MFA programs, to Boston University specifically, got in, went, loved it, great experience at Boston, and uh, worked on my manuscript a couple years, or another year after that, published, here we are. So that's sort of like the chronological timeline, but of course, uh, my thoughts um, toward poetry uh, changed a lot during that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, just the the state of poetry has changed a lot in that time span. Yeah, so, when was so this much. that you started? Like what year? In Boston? Yeah, the, the first time when you um when you you know, your oh, philosopher- started poetry? Yeah,
4: uh, fall 2013. I started writing poetry, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, the oldest poem in the book, "Auto Stereogram," I began in the fall of 2000 in fall 2013. So that's the oldest one
5: in the book.
0: So so you know the the poem that we were talking about was it claims to be the last poem you'll ever write. Um it's so it far. A, yeah. It has that been the last poem? You haven't written a poem since?
4: I've tried to write one mm-hmm. since then. Um and I stopped on purpose. Um I love poetry. I, I love poetry. I love reading poetry, I love writing poetry. But to write poetry right now is honestly, it's uh it, it's just irresponsible. Like I'm I'm in a hard place in life right mm-hmm. now. Uh, financially, circumstantially, it it would just honestly be irresponsible for me right right now. It's not like in um, uh, olden times, like Dostoevsky cranked out a novel in order to earn a living. You can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. You can't earn a living off your writing. So I have to just stop and try to get my finances in order. Perhaps someday I'll write again. It's It's something I think about every single day. So you're right in asking that question because... Um it's something I struggle with. It's almost like an addiction, and it's like to give up that addiction is is difficult. You want to always go back to it. Um and yeah. <laughs> well, I mean I, I, I want to say yes yeah. for sure. It's the last poem I'll ever write because fuck poetry. But um in the in the issue I was published in the last poem I'll ever write, um, the Indian poets issue. Um someone wrote in their biography in the back, um, if you could quit writing, do it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you remember reading that, but, Uh um, and that was, that's all they said. And, um, I thought, yeah, I mean, if you can quit do it because it doesn't make sense from a materialistic or worldly standpoint or anything like that, or from a fame standpoint, no one gives a shit. Um, women certainly don't give a shit. (laughs) Um, here,
0: but, okay. but you're you're a philosophy major, right? And and yeah, there's more to life than the material world, and and poetry oh. is enriching. And I mean, there, there there's reasons why you said you said you love poetry. I mean, what are the things that yeah, you well, love yeah. about it?
4: I love that it. Um, by the way, I've not picked up a philosophy book since grad since graduating, so I've I, I've done away with philosophy, but which I don't think helps the world or oneself. Uh, I know it sounds super cynical, but. Um, I love that poetry creates me a very calm, meditative state. Mm -hmm. Um, my brain can be very haywire and poetry centers me. It's awesome. Um, I just, I also just, I just love putting together a good sentence. It's, there's something very pleasing about that. Um, and making it perfect. And, um, kind of like just looking back and reading it, reading it through over and over and over again and being like, yeah, that's, that's perfect. Um, it feels good. I don't know. It's maybe what a a construction worker feels when they build a house or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, to compare it to something non-artistic. Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, the the one thing I can compare it to is, um, one summer I worked landscaping and we did a lot of these, like there was a, it was a, um, A company that that turned regular houses into group homes. They were like foreclosed houses. We would turn them into group homes for mentally ill adults, and so they would be like a mess. And then you would work all week on like the yard, fixing it all up. And then you know there'd be like flower beds, and there'd be rings around the trees, and the grass would be cut. And there was this like sense that you did something, and that you you made something, and they made the world a little bit better in this tiny tiny way. And that's the feeling I get when I when there's a good poem, you know, it's that feeling of completion and like betterment and making some kind of order out of the chaos of the world. And, and I just think that's always worth doing, even if there's no financial reward for it. Um, I know.
4: I agree. And that's, that's a struggle. That's, that's kind of the struggle. But then I'm like, well, damn, I might be sleeping in some bushes next week. So like, I'm not even kidding. So it's like, what do I, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I, I think if I were to return to writing, I would have to have I would have to be at a place of abundance, uh, emotionally, especially financially, um, because uh this idea of the starving artist is a bunch of bullshit. Um it you write much better in a home with <laughs> yeah. warmth, with food in your stomach, <laughs> not scrapping out in existence, you know, on pen and paper, going to the public library to submit your work. Mm-hmm. No, that's crap. Um, so I think uh, my, one of my favorite poets, Frederick Seidel, who I who um, a quote from his poem is the epigraph of this book. Uh, from his poem, "Widening Income Inequality," and I chose that on purpose. It's a book about socioeconomics. The poem specifically is about socioeconomics. Um, he published his first book and didn't start writing again for almost twenty years. Uh, Sometimes you just need to figure stuff out and he didn't figure it out. It took him 20 years to realize, you know what? I got to keep writing, Mm -hmm. but I think that might be me. We'll see. Time will tell.
0: Well, here's this uh, quote from Frederick, um, Frederick Seidel. Open your arms like a fresh pack of cards and shuffle the deck. Now open your heart. Now open your art. Now get down on your knees in the street and eat. Uh, That's that's the epigram from the book. Yeah. Um, let's hear another poem. Uh, what do you want to read next?
4: Uh, I'll do eighty-one and over. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, because I think it's unique, uh, and then I'll go into a double up after that. Uh, eighty-one over. It begins with a epigraph by Denise Duhamel, which you've had on the Rattlecast. I actually didn't listen to that Rattlecast, but um, so she says in her poem. In my strip club, the girls crawl on stage wearing overalls and turtlenecks, then slowly pull on gloves, ski masks, and hiking boots. At Herb's strip club, the girls are grannies with diabetes. They get wheeled out onto a carpeted stage by come hither caregivers who change their diapers. Take it off, the old men in the crowd shout in coarse voices scratched by age. They reach into beige khakis. Toss handfuls of butterscotch candies like gold coins into a fountain of youth. They drink warm milk. Today, one of the boys died from sudden cardiac arrest, electrified by his eyes. No one seems to notice the team of paramedics carting off the carcass like a football player in a stretcher as the wonderful lethal Ethel went around pinching cheeks, swinging her pendulous breasts like a clock.
0: And that was 81 and over from off topic, yeah. and you can see already i'm um, looking at these poems what the title kind of means off topic um yeah you know these are poems that are that are irreverent and sort of try to push the boundaries of things and and do you think it's your i mean what is it that, that drove you to write to want to be going off topic let's put it that way
4: so uh one of my favorite poets is this uh poet you probably never heard of, but her name is Sarah Scrow. and she is, um, she's around my age, a little bit younger, um, but um, I have corresponded with her before I've been in a journal with her, um, and she writes really um, uh, off-the-cuff poetry, really daring poetry, kind of grotesque poetry, and she was interviewed once and she said in the interview there is this tendency in poetry for you to produce a book that is like unilateral that like uh that that like showcases one dimension of a person like um oh this person's lived experience is as a mexican immigrant and the book therefore is about mexican immigrants like um and i'm mexican by the way so i use that example but um well, it could be anything though, but like there it's so unidimensional often, uh, uh, uh complete books of poetry. And she said that there's so many layers to a human being. There's happiness, there's sad, there's well, we're constantly changing our opinions. Heck, next week I could be like, you know what, fuck it, I'm just gonna start writing another book of poetry. And so my goal was always just to write the best poem I could ever possibly write. And whatever I had at the end of that, just put it together in as organized a fashion as possible, of course. But um and it ended up being in three parts the first part being i feel like hyper energetic uh very off topic poetry the second part being sort of somber morose melancholic poetry which i liken to picasso's blue period i always think about that and the last poem being the only form poems in the book which are alphabet poems but um i really always remember what uh that and she said it a lot better than i did but um why do we have to um, create a book of poetry that is co- oh, cohesive is a word, like co- like in terms of our personality and stuff. Uh, why not just create a bunch of random, really good poems? Um, so I think people used to do that too. Maybe like Ted Coosier comes to mind, just like poems that aren't uh, just, that aren't really about anything except just good poems, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like good, good poems with good metaphors.
0: Yeah, um, and, and I think part of that is the professionalization of poetry, which, um, you know, Dana Joy, who we've had on the Rattlecast too, has that that um, essay that he wrote way back in like 1995 or something about what the, you know, MFA program situation does to make this sort of class of poets that have institutional support and, and sort of this whole thing that grows out of it um and in the so the cohesiveness of books tends to be the contest model i mean a poem you know books of poems stand out when when they have some kind of thing that you can remember them by and so books with themes and and that are cohesive like that work better in the contest model which is what part of the you know the professionalization Mm -hmm. of literature itself and so um So it's sort of interesting that that to hear you being pushed toward that because it seems like what you're, what the book. I mean, talking about a cohesive theme, even if you didn't intend it, the book feels to me like a sort of a gradual, um, like the like the journey of a poet coming into awareness of that institutionalization aspect. Like, there's kind of this like. The beginning section is like, wow, I can write about anything, and I'm the, yes. the creative juices are flowing. And then yes. it's like, oh, but I'm not fitting in now. This sucks, <laughs> and you know that's yes. kind of the journey totally. of the book. And um, totally. so, so, and so, it's always I feel like it's my role to try to to maintain the the passion and spontaneity of the first section of the book. For I mean, that's kind of what I always hope to do uh, with Rattle, is to have a lot of variety and be surprising every time we publish something and, and not go sort of go along with any kind of, um, like establishment structure. And, cool. and it's always a challenge because you're, you know, I mean, we are sort of the black sheep of the poetry world too. I mean, we, Damn. um, we, uh, you know, we're, we have the most subscribers, but we're hardly ever in best American poetry. We're actually blacklisted from places, uh, you know, so it's, uh, you know, for some of the poets we've published, Sorry, what? Yeah, just for some of the poets we've published. I mean, other people won't talk to me, and um, and it's just a weird, it's a weird world that we're living in. Um, So, can you talk a little about that? Like, what was your, like, what was was there a moment that you realized sort of you didn't fit in? This is the thing that I worry about, I guess. What I love about poetry is that you get to step in so many different shoes. I love like not agreeing with a poet, not having you know, not having that experience at all, and then getting to live that. And see the world through those eyes, and so what I always worry about is, as we get more professional, is you know, is there's like more, just more, um, just more, uh, I don't know, you know, the awards and everything, how everything works, how the publishing works. As we get more oh, sort of cohesive, um, you sort of lose the fringe people that are the most interesting because they're sort of pushed away, and and that's the thing that always bothers mm-hmm. me. So, was there a moment that mm-hmm. you felt like you recognized that you didn't fit in?
4: Yeah, with 81 and over, actually. That's one of the reasons I wanted to read it because um, I hope it does cause people to go, ooh, that's a little uncomfortable. Uh, but I, I remember bringing that poem into a workshop, and someone said, it was ageist that I hate old people. <laughs> I just remember thinking, like, oh my god, wow! Like this—that was the first time I'd—I'd I'd ever experienced like, someone calling my poem like "ist," you know, like racist or ageist or something like that. And um, it was a shocker. And that poem or that person continued to uh, critique my poems in, in that type of way. Um, which again led me to drop out. I was just like, oh, I can't, I can't do this. Like I can't write my poetry the way I want to write it. That, yeah. UC Irvine was, was as a whole was uh, when I realized I didn't fit in. And other people realize that too. I have a good friend, Michael Gould. He's been published in uh, places like the adroit journal, MSC like good places. Um, and he's like, he's just a straight white male. Uh <laughs> and uh he's having a hard time getting published and he eventually quit um because at one point one of the people in the um uh program uh went around just i don't know if if you want to hear this story but um it's a pretty kind of powerful story i feel like there was like these poetry presentations or whatever and there was a um uh power whatever it's called um anyways um and he just went around the room saying, fuck you to every white person. He said, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you to every white person in the room. And, s- and then ended by saying, fuck you, white people. And then after that, he gave his uh, presentation on like historical poetry or something like that. And uh, we were just like, what the fuck? Um, I mean, yeah, that that's that was the atmosphere in 2016 at UC Irvine. And uh, it was disgusting and not conducive to creating art. Um and I almost thought I would quit writing poetry then, but I continued. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad I continued to have produced but this Well, you said book. your
0: experience at um, Boston University was much better, though. And, and Yeah. Um, so, I mean, maybe diff- different places or just have different feels. One of the things yeah. that's always I mean, so difficult out. is that um, publishing is such a black box. You know, you, you sort of put your thing in and then you get a response back and you have no idea what's gone on behind the scenes, which makes you wonder... Um, you know if there 's other things besides the poems that are that are being you know used to decide um, what 's being published and there 's really no way around that problem because you can 't uh you, you just can 't know and so it 's really easy to jump to conclusions about that but the truth is that publishing is just really hard there 's so many poets, which is another thing about the professionalization that 's the point that Dana Joya makes is that there's thousands of um poets graduating from university programs every year and yeah. um, you know' is certified yeah. as poets and and all need to be published and then there 's the published yeah, is masters of poetry, and then there's the publisher parish <laughs> model for the jobs they're trying to seek. Um, so you have to keep publishing no matter what. And so there's the, really, um, you know, it, we, we, it's weird because we talk about, you know, there's no money in poetry, um, but still, capitalists yeah. like market forces push poetry in all the directions that it goes in, and um, and that's one of them. The the, mm-hmm. the just the um, the the environment of having to publish. Um, and just having so many people trying to publish and so many poets, it's sort of a, I don't know. It's like a, it's the best of times and the worst of times in a weird way. There's the best poetry you've ever seen. And, um, and, and, and it's also the the more hard, more difficult to, to be published or, so it's, it's a, it's a tough time. It's a strange time. Um,
4: yeah. I can talk really quick about about yeah. that. Um, Dickens, I don't like Dickens, but <laughs> anyways, um, that was the Dickens quote, right. But, um, uh, yeah, I remember reading on some guys' like Twitter feed. I don't have Twitter, but maybe it was on Twitter, maybe it was on Facebook or something. Uh, Kava Akbar, you've probably heard of him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, big-time big poet, whatever. Um, he wrote, it is a golden age of poetry. It is a golden age of poetry. It is a golden age of poetry. Sometime, I don't know, 2017 or something like that. And I just thought, yeah, for you. <laughs> I mean, for you. Uh, for people uh, who have been handed awards and uh given prestigious teaching uh, positions at purdue university and who fit all the woke criteria you know as a middle eastern guy who uh is non-binary and all these things yeah for you it's a golden age of poetry for me just some uh straight white guy writing poetry that is mildly offensive to people uh it's not at all i'm trying to write the best or i was trying to write the best poetry i possibly could i thought that's all that mattered, right? Well, that's not all that matters at all. In fact, that's very little of what matters, uh, at least in my experience, and it's unfortunate. Um, it is a golden age of poetry. Oh, my God, give me a break. Well, um, I, I
0: think that it is. I mean, the, you know, there's... I hope. The, the, I mean, right. I- exclusion was a huge problem for, for for a very long time, for for a century, you know? And the fact that everybody... It has more access to it. And there's just so many poets writing and there's so many opportunities. I mean, there's so much competition to publish, but there's so many opportunities to publish too. I mean, back in even in the 70s, people had to make their own magazines because there weren't magazines and there weren't creative writing programs to go to. And um, I think it really is the golden age, actually. And um, I think it's easy to sort of, you know, see how hard it is to to get a hold of anything. But, um, but it's also, it's also, there's so many opportunities for everybody. And I think it, I think it really is the best time. Um, but poetry does exist outside of, um, a profit, which is sort of the beauty. You sort of have to embrace that because there's no, there's no way to commodify it. And there's no, um, no. you know, there's no way to make money, which, which is sort of the purity in the, the beauty of it. So I, I really do think it's the the golden age of poetry,
4: I don't because when there's so much of something, uh, it becomes devalued. Like you're seeing this with the with inflation right now, the American dollar. When there's so much money printed, dollar becomes devalued. No one gives a shit about it. Um, and so when there's so much poet, so much poetry, uh, a really good poem, like every poem on off topic, of course, uh, can get passed over uh, easily because someone in some MFA program at Antioch University or something like that. It's just like, oh, this whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, Because a lot of uh, young readers are reading the poems um, uh, for submissions. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, to go back to Dostoevsky, uh, the reference, I'd rather live during that time, you know, to create great art, put forth that great art, and people would be more likely to,
0: see
4: it my mm-hmm. that's my view and i also just don't like the whole technological like online era where you can just uh look up poetry for free and not buy the book and stuff like that i really like that
0: yeah well there's something about holding a book in your hands that's so much better than um than having a book on a screen on your phone where it's all a distraction um, yeah
4: no it's see. so antithetical to poetry i feel like
0: yeah um yeah I'm just trying to read. Oh, yeah. So so uh, Malcolm Glass says, So Many Poets, 1941. A woman says to Frost how wonderful that 600 poets were published in journals last month. And then Frost replies, Madame, there haven't been 600 poets in the history of the English language. And I mean, that was the case back then. And now there are there are 600 poets with degrees this semester that just graduated. And, um, and I think, I don't know, I think the, I think the quality though rises to the top. Like I, like you, you know, if you say, you know, I'm working hard and writing great poems, you had poems published in Rattle. You had your book published. It was nominated for a firecracker award. Um, I mean, All works. you know, so it's not, it's not like it doesn't work. I mean, I think it does. Yeah. There's just a lot of, of competition and there are a lot of poems out there. There's, there's a lot of things distracting us and, drawing our attention elsewhere. Um, but, but I, I don't know. I mean, I guess the, I try to, I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to head you on is to persuade you not to quit. <laughs> okay. Oh. And so I just keep upfront <laughs> about that because, cause I think that we need a variety of voices, um, and perspectives and, and I, and I really worry about people being, you know, being scared away and, and then not continuing. Um, and, and, and so, um, I don't know. So I hope that you continue writing. Do you want to read another poem?
4: Sure, yeah. And really quickly, though, it, before anyone thinks I'm complaining, like, oh, white male privilege, right? Oh, my God. Or white male fragility, all this bull crap, you hear it. Um, I worked so hard at getting these poems published. It was not by accident. So I submitted to probably, um, if I look back on Submittable, it's set over 700 entries on Submittable, not to mention all the email entries, mm-hmm. uh, all that. So probably around a 1,000 to get 20 poems of the 36 in my book published uh and then 12 hour days writing over and over and over again but yeah so i will read um god you know i think i could go for political poem the double absidarian. okay sure um or email to young poet briefest of my life yeah, I'll do uh, Two Double Ops, Email to a Young Poet and Political Poem. I'll do Email to a Young Poet first because it kind of goes with what we were just talking about as far as submissions and rejections. So Email to a Young Poet re-advice, which is a Rilk reference. Um, all right, listen up. First, what you want to do is blend Ritz, bananas, and orange juice together until you get a creamy consistency. Add ghost pepper hot sauce, X-lax, Diet Pepsi, gunpowder a glass of gasoline, and a dozen raw eggs for protein. Blend again and enjoy. I call it a Molotov fruit smoothie because, like a Molotov cocktail or fugu, it's liable to kill you. Either way, it will turn your butthole into a flamethrower the next day when you pass gas. If that sounds gross or dangerous, consider all the other junk people, myself included, ingest. Rubbery burgers from DQ, Kentucky fried chicken, all-you-can-eat pancakes at IHOP, the point I'm trying to make with all this mumbo jumbo Molotov talk is that you have to learn to cope with pain, noxious amounts of it and not temporarily, but ad infinitum otherwise you risk becoming not a poet but a mental patient who chops off his ear and drowns himself in drink quit writing if you can't handle a little gasoline and OJ, rejection will hurt more trust me, it'll feel like a samurai sword sodomizing your ego without lube Van Gogh took his own life it hurt him so bad preferred pushing up daisies to living broken unknown, R.I.P. So punch yourself violently in the nuts. Give a sumo wrestler a piggyback ride. Watch a beauty pageant while guzzling the aforementioned XXX smoothie. Get used to pain to make rejection less tragic. Young poet, good luck. I'd ramble on, but I have a date with a sub-zero walk-in freezer, naked. I'm trying to contract pneumonia." So yeah, it's, it's painful to, to write, to, to produce, to uh, submit, to get rejected. At all levels, whether just starting now, applying MFA programs getting rejected. So that's that one double obscenarian.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can we can we talk about that a little bit before we read the next one? Because um, okay. And that's the thing. See, I guess maybe your book is sort of all the things I have anxiety about as a publisher, I because I feel awful sending rejection. You know, I mean, you have to do it. Yeah. There's no you can't just we talked to, you know, we talked about the inflation of, of poetry and how many poets there are. There's a lot yeah. of great, great poems and you have to pick and you have to curate and make it so only a few are the ones that are read. And um, and so it, the rejection is just such a big part of the game. And every time I send rejection letters, um, which I have to do it like a, a, a thousand at a time, like literally with Submittable. it's like here's the thousand for this week. Bam! And I know that a thousand doesn't people, that feel a little
4: doesn't that feel a little good though? I'm kidding. No,
0: it actually doesn't. It feels awful because I know a thousand <laughs> people are feeling like crap because of the button yeah. I just clicked. And and it's just it's something that I always. Um, it's my least favorite part of the job by so far. And I, you know, sometimes I even put off reply, you know, I put off replying longer than I should just cuz I don't want to have to. And um and, and and so I don't know, that's just something that everybody has to deal with in this, but is there I mean you mentioned that you, you submitted a thousand times to get these 28 poems published. Um I don't know, do you have any any perspective on on how to get through that struggle? Because you you have to. I mean, if you want to write, you have to publish, or, or else no one's going to read it. And uh, so, how do you yeah. get through that? I mean, and some people are, you know, just post their poems on um, on online or on Substack or something, and then they have a little necklace nexus of readers that read. But yeah. um, I don't know. But but maybe people are in the comments can have advice for how to how to get through just the inevitable quality of rejection that's part of poetry. I think uh, Dick Westheimer said, uh, any enterprise that includes the three words submit, reject, and accept has inherent problems, which is a perfect way to put it. Um, So I don't know. And I also like to try to think of when we accept a poem, as like an offer. We offer to publish a poem. I I try to use that language too, because I'm not like, oh, you're accepted as a human being because this poem, you know, worked for me and I think our readers will like it. Um, I don't know there's just so much we, the thing is we never talk about any of this stuff really. Um, honestly. So I don't know. So what do you think about, about that before we read another poem?
4: It depends what your goals are. Um, you mentioned uh substat or something like that. You just, or vlogs. Some people are perfectly content with that Instagram poetry, uh, or self-publishing, uh, what's a milk and honey, rupee cow or whatever her name is. Um, uh, millionaire poet now. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it depends what your po- or your goals are. Mine was always to be an academic to to eventually teach poetry. It didn't work out, of course. But so I my goal was to publish with as great as publications as I could. I do think is a great publication, but to submit to like the most prestigious publications, just wait, just to have the patience, and it's grueling because the average is like what six months, four months. It's a long process uh, to get those bigger uh, acceptances. Yeah. Um, But if you don't want to do that, that's perfectly fine. Uh, So that's that's I I do think it's funny, though, like, in my opinion. I mean, Instagram poets are read more widely than poets (laughs) published in like, I don't know. um, Poetry, whatever. Um, So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that that brings up the question of what poetry really, what poetry is, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, poetry was always, always something that pushes the boundaries of your thoughts and and finds the the cracks in them and 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 explores and examines more closely human experience and nature. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and so and, and so you know, Instagram poetry tends to be confirming. You know, and that's just in a completely opposite direction. You know, it's, it's something about sharing an experience that you want to relate, which is very different than exploring and sort of dissecting and finding the nuances in things. So, so nuance is lost um, in those kind of spaces, which, which can be profitable. Because it, you know, if, you, if you're saying something that, that everybody can relate to, then they can everybody. share it and, yeah. and then buy the book and all that Fine. stuff. So I don't know. I mean, it's another thing that's very complicated when it comes to poems.
4: Yeah, for sure. Well, let's hear, um, hear another poem. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess I'll read a um, political poem. Why not? This is uh, one of the reasons he published my poem was uh, the last poem I ever write was because of the pl- sort of political aspect of it. So we can read this one. Um, it's uh, it's also a double absidarian, A through Z down the left side, Z through A down the right. It begins with a quote by George Orwell, and that quote is, A few cubicles away, a mild, ineffectual, dreamy creature named Ampleforth, with very hairy ears and a surprising talent for juggling with rhymes and meters, was engaged in producing garbled versions, definitive texts, they were called, of poems which had become ideologically offensive. So the poem uh, is as follows, political poem. A far-left progressive purple-haired feminist from Uzbekistan who was in my MFA program at Boston University claimed all cops should die. She also worshipped Marx, despised America, and considered herself a militant SJW. Evie, the naive damsel-turned-terrorist in the movie V for Vendetta, wasn't even as extreme as this BU girl who, by the way, said white people are inherently racist. Huh? I said, and informed her that that was itself racist but she just accused me of attacking her. Judge one another not according to skin color, nor IQ, King said, I'm paraphrasing, but according to important crap like character, whether you uphold freedom, a memo most poets these days seem not to have gotten. Not that there's anything wrong with writing a poem once in a while, it's just that fanatical leftists and the political poetry they produce has hijacked the art and it's all junk. Quash dissident opinions, says the new order, Label Donald J. Rump and anyone flaunting a MAGA hat a Nazi. Suppress free speech that expresses hate speech. To say the left has gone cuckoo would be a misleading understatement. They're a cult that practices self-victimization. Why? Because victims are untouchable, which which means if you criticize them, they can call you a bigoted xenophobe and get you fired. It's as easy as ABC. Yay for love. Yay for inclusivity. Yay for this culturally drab zeitgeist fueled by identity politics and a radical agenda. So, yeah.
0: yeah so it's was political
4: poem. That's a political poem.
0: From off topic. Which is an
4: ironic title because I say I hate political poetry. So I ironically titled it that.
0: Um, and, and yeah, so this was the thing, too, that... Um, has always troubled me. I mean, we we're just talking about all the things that trouble me. But one of the things is that um, there's just, it's it's a uh, the poetry world is completely progressive. I mean, it really is. Yeah. And um, yeah. and it's so progressive. Even if I agree with a lot of that um, on principle, um, yeah. it, the, There's a real problem with having it be a monoculture without other voices to sort of push back and hear different sides of. And I was thinking about doing um, way back when I was kind of naive about all this, maybe 2009 or 2008, I was thinking about doing a conservative poets issue just because there's so few conservative poets. And that's what we always do. We're like, Oh, we're not getting submissions from this group of people. Let's have a, a you know, a, a group of poems, you know, let's have a call for submissions for conservative poets. And I asked around for who to interview and who might submit and nobody wanted to confess to being conservative. And, uh, no, there true. was, you know, and, um, And a few people would say, like, oh, I'm not conservative, even though I knew them to be conservative. They would say, "Um, I'm not conservative. I'm a classical liberal was what I got. I heard a lot. Um, And and there's a sense, even though I'm not sure that it's true, that, you know, it's career. I think you mentioned career suicide by saying you're a conservative. Um, Maybe it's a poem. Um, There's definitely a sense that that's there in the sense, um, creates a kind of self-censorship where you don't hear any other voices except for ones, um, you know, especially as poetry gets more political, you don't hear any voices except for from the sort of standard perspective. And so, I don't know, I mean, do, do you call yourself conservative? It kind of sounds like it through that poem. And do you have a, is it, is it hard to even do that?
4: I used to call myself conservative, but now it's become such a divisive, um well all labels have become divisive i don't want to participate in this uh um clown show this this like football game we mentioned last night red team blue team i'm red team you blue team i know like you like whatever um also uh i mean obviously like liberals are a joke to me but uh conservatives have let me down greatly um and it's very clear that conservatives in dc Are just complete hacks and chills. And uh, I don't want to be associated with them either. I haven't watched the news in quite a while. I'm done with it. Um, If I do consider, if I would call myself a conservative poet, like if I had to choose, yeah, I would say that. But uh, it would be just as a way to say I'm not a leftist poet, just because I don't like that movement at all. Uh, so it would just be like a, a, a reaction, a, a label of reaction mm-hmm. rather than a label of just like announcing what I am. Uh, but, um, I'm not really a fan of like attaching myself to my identity to a label, but, uh, um, I, I guess, I guess, yeah. So Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, when you talk about like the Trump era and we probably published yeah. I don't know. I mean, we might have published 50 or 50 poems about Trump, maybe. Yeah. And we had one poem, you know, in the whole set where we had one poem that sort of empathized with Trump, even though I think it was the harshest criticism of all the poems against Trump, because it empathized with his uh, narcissism <laughs> and, and sort of, and really brought <laughs> to life, which was um, Rachel Custer's poem, How I'm Like Donald Trump. And, it's really um, good. And, and so just the the contrast of of not having any other perspective is a really... I don't know. It's hard to know. You know, it it sort of renders political poetry meaningless if it all is coming from the same perspective. In a way, like if if it was a vigorous debate between two sides, it might be interesting. Um, But I don't know. Um, You you mentioned that I think when we originally published this poem, um, the the last poem in the book, that you used the um, abecedarian form because nobody could not see the poetry of it or something as you were trying to write on the subject matter. Can you talk a little bit about that, about what it was that drew you to that form, which you have the whole section, the last third of the book is um, the alphabet city, which um, is in that abacadarian form. So can you talk about why you chose to write poems in that style?
4: Yeah. Um, The first is just fascination and uh, um, playfulness. Um, As difficult as the form as it is it's it fits my personality which is wacky and haywire and my style of poetry very well yet at the same time is able to restrain it from keep uh it's able to keep it from going too far within that very tight core set of a form uh bound by both sides a through z z through a no exceptions um there was very little of that there was a very little of those poems in existence the poems i have read that exist I don't like. So I, I still I like that they were written in that form. I think it's cool that the poets did I just don't think they're very good. Too often, the poets uh, that have written po- those poems in that form, um, they just try to meet the form, and they sacrifice the poem itself. My goal was to write poems that were so good, no one would ever know that they were in the form, and that's been true. No one has ever known that they were in the form unless I told them, ever.
0: Oh, really? And,
4: <laughs> yeah, maybe you did. Maybe you did, but uh, no one... Um, before uh, MFA teachers, no one, um, and that was awesome to me. I also realized toward the end of my writing career, uh, if you could call it that, that uh, I would be quitting soon, and that I wanted to finally say what I wanted to say, and that if I wrote a poem in free verse, people would knock it; they would hate on it. They could say anything they wanted, but if I wrote a poem in a double absidian form. It's untouchable, in my opinion, because you try it. You know, it, the person who's knocking me like they did on Facebook, and I responded I, with some witty comments like um, it was hilarious. I loved trolling those people, but uh, you try it. You can't do it, can you? Um, so I, I wanted to create an airtight, air, airtight poems uh, that even if someone disagreed with them ideologically, they could not disagree with them artistically. Yeah. And I wanted to do the most anyone had ever written before. And as to my knowledge, I, I've done the most anyone's ever done of well, the form. It was interesting that you quote
0: Denise Duhamel in there, because I always think of that as her, her kind of style goes so well with that form. And your voice in here, too, because there's so much energy. You know, it's like a maximalist. So much stuff yeah. comes out and you kind of can't stop. Even, I think when you recorded the poem, I think you mentioned like you were out of breath trying to read it for... Uh, yeah, for you can website. hear me trying to catch my breath. <laughs> yeah. And they're those kind of poems. I just love that energy. So it's a really great form. And um, and you can't... Really, it's true. Even if you disagree with the politics, you can't say that those aren't really well-crafted poems. Um, and, and it's interesting. So a lot of people in the comments are all saying, um, you know, how much they hate labels and are so tired of labels too. And, and, cool. um, and, and job, there shouldn't guys. be two sides anyway. And... You know, Carlton John says there are two sides, especially if you're into flat earth. And and that's really how it is. Like like I feel like we're put into these boxes by people who benefit from having this like divisive public in two separate boxes at each other's throats while they're stealing everything behind the scenes. And that's really what's going on in the world. Hmm. Oh, and so for you know it's sure. just a divide and conquer strategy. So uh-huh. having these labels, um, but, but even you, you said something about how you can't stand liberals or something. And um,
6: you know, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean even, you know, that's it's true. just there's no way around it because we live. I mean, that's why poetry is so important, too, is because we live in a world of language. And so having these labels that we're sort of bombarded with all the time and the othering that we're always doing with the other side, whichever side it is, um, it, it's just something that is really tearing. I think it's tearing society apart. And then, you know, with the oh, Internet, yeah. we have these. Self-selecting echo chambers. I I read an essay in nineteen ninety nine in my only philosophy class in college. Actually, it was about the it was projecting what the future was going to be like because of, I think it was just because of cable news, but it was because you could select your own um, news to view then the view then they would have to be pushed farther and farther into two extreme sort of dipoles. They would eventually be at each other's throats. And then the internet comes out and it makes that even worse because you select your friends based on what you you yeah. agree with too. And I don't know, we gotta find a way off of this insanity, but I don't know how um, I don't know how we're gonna I'm do it. And I hope, you know, I mean as a publisher and as a as a editor, I hope that I do a tiny part and and spreading some, you know, a, a bridge between people who might disagree. Um, but, but it's not easy to do. And, and there aren't a lot of people that are, that are, um, reaching across the divide at all. Um, and there sh- shouldn't even be a divide. So anyway, it's very interesting to see these comments here about labels and, and, um, yeah, I think we kind of all feel the same thing. <laughs> so
4: cool. Yeah.
0: I mean, but, but it's hard to... con- yeah, it, it really is. I mean, and you can even look at something like. Um, I mean, this is, I try to sort of not voice my own political opinions, but if you look at something about like Occupy Wall Street, they had that, um, that they had that narrative of the 1%, which was something that we could all get behind. And then, and then what happened is that the 1% came in and switched the narrative into different identities and and made us fight amongst each other again, because we were about to unify under the fact that there was the 1% versus the 99%, which is a much better way. That's what's happening right now.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Right now, this is a gigantic psychological operation or PSYOP that this idea that America is racist, uh, that's a PSYOP that the elites are using. It's all about the rich versus the poor. That's what it's always been about throughout time. That's what it's about now. It's not about race. It's about wealth disparities. The rich want to stay rich. The poor want to stay or they want to keep the poor poor. Uh, That's just look what's happening. I'm getting poor. Bezos is getting richer and they have to. Divide in Congress, us, make us fight, tell uh, the media outlets who they own. I mean, Jeff Be- it's no coincidence that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: He can put whatever he wants in there to to make sure that people keep in line with the narrative that you know America's racist people racist is a huge racist problem in America and stuff like that. All these big time uh, technocratic elites own media mm-hmm. outlets. That's by design. Duh. Uh it's, on people um but yeah i mean even just walking down the sidewalk this morning i went on a walk um the person stepped off the sidewalk 10 feet out went around me because they're so scared of uh omnicron right which is uh, if you rearrange letters uh spells moronic actually but um they've succeeded in dividing us uh, ideologically and now physically with with the whole um uh scare you know uh, uh the, the bubonic plague of our time whatever uh so i can't even say hello to a neighbor who i'm passing it's a shame
0: well uh well us we've been talking a lot let's hear another poem we want to make sure we, we cover sure some poems. i think we have about 10 minutes maybe let's left. do
4: okay let's do uh um the upper east side If you've ever visited, so this is sort of a long poem, but I feel like it's, uh, it, it gets to the heart of the book, which is socioeconomics in my view. If you've ever visited New York City, you've probably been to the Met. It's this gigantic archivy museum on the Upper East Side next to Central Park. Six blocks up is the Guggenheim, another famous museum. But I've never been there. It's 25 bucks because that's the thing. The Met's free or nearly. You pay what you want if you live in the city. Each time I've gone, I've only paid a penny. I'm always confused by people who pay more. I'll see them handing over 10 20 even $100 bills. I'm like, dude, you realize you don't have to do that, right? But the Met depends on people embarrassed to be perceived as not having money, so I guess it balances out. When I first moved to New York in 2017, I actually lived on the Upper East Side, on 72nd Street by the train station with that never-ending escalator in it. I say actually because it's one of the most expensive neighborhoods to live in, and now was so broke I ate tricks with a fork to save milk. Okay, not really, but I was pretty broke. Before moving, I was working as a dishwasher in San Diego and had managed to save up just over 2000 bucks. That meant I could afford a place that was around 700 a month, enough for first and last plus money for beer until I found a job. So I typed my price range into Craigslist and the next day, moved from the hostel in Bushwick I was staying at to the place on the UES. It was August, but there was no AC. The sole window looked out onto a brick wall painted a pigeon shit. The bed it came furnished with was a three-inch layer of orange foam. The one bonus was the location. Maybe you don't like ritzy shit, but I do because I've never had it. Walking down the avenues there with bellhops standing outside gilded hotels and ladies in hats walking toy poodles and business owners hosing off sidewalks which the poodles had pissed on despite signs that say curb your dog was like walking through Disneyland to me. It was what I thought of when I thought of New York, Brooklyn, Queens. Psh, give me taxes and corking fees and hydrothermal manholes. Give me suits and sweets and selfies in front of the 9-11 memorial. Give me digital propaganda and time's square. Give me the Upper East Side. Whenever I wasn't hungry, I'd get up before the sun crested the buildings and walk the four blocks over to Central Park. I'd get a triple espresso at Le Pan Quotidien and sit down on the bench in front of a fake pond and read. I'd imagine Salinger sitting there 70 years earlier observing the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents of the ducks I was now observing. In the evening, if I wasn't working or getting sloppy at a bar, to avoid going back to my hovel, I'd take a penny and go to the Met. It's funny because I'm not even a fan of most art. I just liked being there, surrounded by it. When I moved to Williamsburg then, land of the hipsters, it wasn't too long before I began to miss the UES. But it never went back because my job was in Williamsburg. plenty of bars to get drunk at there already. Also, because it was getting close to winter, and I'd heard the subway in winter was an incubator for influenza. If I could avoid it, i trees started blooming. Parkas started shedding. The East River started sparkling, sort of. I thought how full of... I thought... I thought how full of Life Central Park must be and I remembered my old morning routine. So on a Saturday when I wasn't to sit down on, walk on the dirt track around the reservoir, buy a soft pretzel with salt and mustard on a corner, then go to the Met for a couple hours. And maybe after I grab an IPA at a bar and strike up a conversation with a beautiful woman, I tell her my name was Chad Steele and I was a venture capitalist in town on business. With my itinerary set, I took the L to Union Square then transferred to the 4, which runs like a catheter up the big dick of Manhattan. Right after it got going, though, a shirtless, barefoot homeless dude shuffled in. Having been in the city a while now, I'd seen my fair share of crazy bastards. Not often homeless either. I went out for a drink with this chick I met at Whole Foods who said she was a gender non-binary, vegan, cat-loving socialist. She talked about shutting down the patriarchy as if it were a slaughterhouse and her disgust with the disparity between the rich and poor. You live in Soho, I said. You work at Equinox. Your point, she said. But then there's the homeless crazy bastards. Their homeless is not the reason they're crazy, but their craziness often the reason they're homeless. So anyway, this dude walks in, smearing human shit across the floor, like a janitor doing his job in reverse. He'd pinched a loaf in the space between the cars and I guess had stepped in it. getting up. He hardly seemed to care. He just kept walking, dragging his shitty foot behind him like a zombie. We all sat there and looked at each other and didn't look at each other, praying he wouldn't stop in front of us and ask for a change or a seventh generation baby wipe. Of course, when the train stopped at Grand Central, everyone rushed to leave, stepping over the line of feces and out the doors as other passengers filed in. If you think I thought this was hilarious, I didn't. But what was I supposed to do? Give the crackhead the penny in my pocket so we could go contemplate a Picasso? Virtue signal like that woke Equinox chick, but not really do anything? No thanks. Instead, I got on the next train and went to Central Park Zoo where I took an iPhone video of seals doing tricks for fish.
0: Yeah, take a breath. That is some poem. Uh, that is the side. Yeah, take a drink or something uh, from off topic. Okay. Grant Quackenbush, yeah.
4: Before we go, too, I just want to talk really quickly about the cover. This is the original oil painting, uh, painted by Bradford J. Salomon, whose work you should buy, definitely. Here we go. Um, And I'm super stoked on it. Yeah, he's an amazing artist. I could tell you all about that story another time, but I met him and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, so so what was um? It's an interesting choice to put your own a picture of yourself on the cover, uh, which not many yeah, poets talk about
4: narcissistic.
0: <laughs> so uh, so what was the what was the impetus for that?
4: I'm just going to keep it here. Um, he paints great portraits. It's an amazing. I've, I had seen some books with uh, uh, the poets on the cover, and I thought, why not me? Why not mine? The book is very much like you said, sort of an artist's journey. Uh, or Kunstler Roman, uh, um, or sort of Bildung's Roman, and so it's really about me, as narcissistic as that sounds, and I figured I would do a painting. It's sort of a sad-looking painting, which uh, makes sense, given the realization throughout the book that this is, um, especially in the middle part of the book. Um, it, was, it was mostly that. I just wanted a really, really beautiful cover, and I was looking for images and I wasn't satisfied with anybody, any of them. And I just wanted to make my own.
0: Yeah. Well, it definitely stands out. And, and it's another, it's another uh, example of the kind of give no Fs, you know, kind of perspective yeah. that you have about it, which is interesting and refreshing. Um, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, you were in also our um, service workers issue. Um, and, yeah. and there's this, it, it kind of has come up a lot in, in separate times in the show, but there's the whole economic Barriers to poetry itself, um which is a problem too. We talked really early on even then before you were on about um submission fees and the problems that those have oh, yeah. if you you know if you have a thousand submissions and it's three dollars each that's a lot of money, especially if, a lot of money you know and if you um if you you know have a job you know and making a lot of money that's not a big deal, maybe over the course of several years, but if you're working in the service industry for ten dollars an hour. Um, that's a real barrier to publishing. And then th- that goes, you know, there's all the retreats, there's all the workshops <laughs> and, and all the um, you know, festivals and the AWP conference that costs a fortune to go to. Um yeah. and so there's this whole like networking aspect that's involved in the poetry community that you don't have access to if you don't if you can't afford it. Um so so and then At the same time, there's this um, sort of fantasy about the starving artist that you mentioned about how, you know, working all day as a waiter or whatever you're doing, and then writing all night, like, like, as if you're not exhausted and still have the time for that. Could you just talk yeah. a little bit about that? Were, were, were the poems in this book written while you were working in the service industry? Or was it like when you no. had other time? Yeah, yeah.
4: No, uh, I am thankful to MFA programs for giving me the time to write. Uh, as crazy as UC Irvine was, I um, I wrote a lot of poems during that time and a lot of poems during Boston University, a ton of poems. I wrote Upper East Side during that time. Um, and uh, so, no, they weren't very few poems were written while I was uh, going to work at six o'clock in the evening going barbacking, coming home at 4 o'clock in the morning, falling asleep at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, waking up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, getting ready and going to work again, taking the Q train or the J train down to Manhattan again. Very few poems were written. Uh, in fact, I didn't think of any during that time. Uh, it's too hard. Charles Bukowski, who is one of my uh, uh, idols for sure, um, talked about that. He's. I mean, that's where he. That's where I got that Starving Artist um uh, commentary from. He said the myth of the starting an harvest is a hoax. Is a hoax. A uh, uh, writer writes much better with a porterhouse steak in his stomach and uh, followed by a bottle of whiskey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that yeah. would be true. It, yeah. I mean the thing. Um, I keep thinking about this, but but David Kirby, you mentioned you like the David Kirby episode. Mm-hmm. You know, and cool his formula for poetry is like idea plus time equals poem. I think. But if you're working a blue collar job um, or several, you don't have time, and so that's another. There's just so many barriers. Um, you know, you, you think of poetry as all you need is a notebook or something, but that's really no. not the case. You know,
4: you need a room with a view, as Virginia Woolf said. But nowadays, you need. A, I mean, how are you going to get that room with a view? You know, where I live in Encinitas, a room with a view is like fucking like three thousand dollars for a room with a view. Where am I supposed to? I'm making a dollar more than minimum wage right now. <laughs> room with a view, okay. Mm-hmm. um right so how are you gonna get that exactly that's the question and that's why I am entering law school yay oh, So that's, go. <laughs> I'm going to law school um uh-huh. uh, so we'll see i if not this fall the fall after I've done the all set I've applied to all the schools um it, it'll just be a matter of deciding when uh when's the most opportune time to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and the the poetry though, you know, even though there are these barriers to sort of participating, it's just such an enriching thing. I just go back to that. And do you do you imagine you know finding time to keep keep writing even as you stay busy um, and and are you know working and trying to to make ends meet?
4: So yeah, I plan on being a lawyer, and and being a lawyer, you're going to have to work ten, twelve hour days. No, I don't plan on writing for quite a long time, but. Like I said previously, when I do begin writing again, if I do, it has to be from a place of abundance. I cannot write. I cannot. To do so otherwise would be irresponsible. It really would. I don't have any family that has money. I mean, they're all dirt poor. I need to take care of the essentials first. Maslow's hierarchy. You know, I need to get that. I need to survive first. Honestly, uh, this is a question a lot of people, you know, don't have to think about. If you don't have to think about it, congratulations. You know, you won the lottery as far as being born in America in a rich home congratulations to you, but, um, no, there'll be quite a long time. Uh, I would like to write again, just cause it's cool. You know, I, I like to put together a good, a good sentence, man. It feels really good, but, um, I need to take care of shit, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, do you, do you feel like in the process of writing this book, like you got something out of it psychologically? Like, do you feel like you're more, it, it, you know, that you've learned things and are better, you know, have a better uh, sense of the world through the process of writing the book? Like, did you, do you have non monetary rewards from the process of putting a book together? No, no, <laughs>
4: no, none at all. If, if anything, it's made my perspective about the world worse and, uh, and hampered my growth. Hmm,
0: interesting. Well, on that fine note, let's read one last poem and, and close out the show.
4: Sure. Uh, This poem is called Not the Great Poet. It's a short poem. Uh, Not the Great Poet. One's life is purpose driven, and that purpose is to become a poet, a great poet, a poet who will transcend the art. As one ages, however, and is confronted by reality, one's view of poetry changes. Too niche. No return on investment. Dumb. The passion kept hidden like a secret power as a youth seems now unimportant. Fucking seems important. Owning a Tesla seems important, but poetry, poetry does not seem important. Yet from time to time, perhaps out of reason, perhaps drunken emotion, one tells oneself that it is important, the sublime, then sits down and writes what is, regrettably, not.
0: That is not the great poet. And once again, from that off is not the great
4: poet, <laughs> I was once wanting to be the great poet. That is, I am now longer not the great poet, even though this is a great book and peeps who are listening, you best buy this book. Okay. <laughs> it's really good. Um, and you'll love it. I promise. <laughs> Send me an email. If you buy it or something, grantwilliamq at gmail.com. Tell me you like it, whatever. Uh, that'd be really cool. Be cool. to um, uh, see interaction with the book because that, that makes authors and artists really happy to see interaction with it because I'd never expected a lot to sell. But if I see some some sort of interaction, that'd be really cool. Even if it's negative interaction, heck, that's awesome. I don't know if you read my comments on Facebook, but I was completely trolling those, this girl who said my poems were like, the poem you published was dumb and stupid and all this stuff. And I completely like dissected what she said and it was hilarious.
0: Well, thanks for being a guest today and sharing this welcome with us, Grant. Uh, it's Thank been, you, Tim. It's been interesting. Uh, great talking to you
4: yeah I'll see you later
0: okay cool take care bye bye so that was uh, Grant quackenbush with his new book off topic and uh here's on screen. you can find the book with this uh it is a sorrowful portrait of Grant on the cover from um um what is it uh pinion publishing and that is pinion publishing um uh, pinion hyphen publishing dot com and Opinion is p i n y o n hyphen publishing dot com. The book is off topic, and that was our topic for today. I thought it would be an interesting discussion talking to Grant. Very different from sort of the usual uh, perspectives that we have and talk about on poetry. Martha Deed says she already has it really good. Thanks, Martha. And um, so we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna go to open lines, and um, and you can share whatever you would like to share. Um, the The uh, prompt for this week was to write a poem about to find it write a poem about a place you've always wanted to visit be as specific as you can that was the prompt for this week if you have a prompt poem if you have poems about current events um, you can share those too you can share new recently published poems whatever you'd like to share please feel free to do so the uh, email is openmic at rattle.com. That's openmic at rattle.com. Email the poem to me there. Then I can show it on screen as you read or a link to somewhere if it's published. Then choose one or the other, either Skype. Skype me at rattle poetry, all one word. Just say hi. I'd like to share a poem on the chat message, and I will call you when it is your turn through Skype. Over the phone, it's 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just call, let it ring a few times, then hang up, and I will call you back within the hour when it is your turn. And uh, let's take a quick break, stretch, refresh your beverages, and I will be right back. Back. thanks so much for your patience as we get set up. Uh, one thing I want to share, Grant mentioned his email address if you wanted to email him, and uh, he said it really quickly, though. So it's Grant William Q. Grant William Q at gmail.com if you want to email Grant about his book or anything like that. And uh, let's go to the prop poems for this week. And I said last week that I what again, the prop was write a poem about a place you've always wanted to visit, be it specific. As you can, this is the the prompt for this week, and my poem. Um, I, I said last week that my New Year's resolution was to write real poems instead of like phoning it in every week, um, which I you know I, I I try not to, but I have been a little bit too much lately. I think of a real poem as entering a, a poetic space where you're. It's sort of a spiritual thing almost, where you're surprising yourself a little bit and not knowing where you're going. And uh, so, I actually, I did manage, even though it's a short poem, I did enter the poetic space. And my place that I would like to go or had never gone, it reminded me of. Um, I had an opportunity to go to Antarctica um, in college for the summer for me, which would have been the winter um, in Antarctica. It was for a research project, and my job would have been to interview people um, about the isolation, both social and like um, sensory, uh, from being over in the uh, cold, freezing. 24 hour night in antarctica there's only a few hundred people that stay on the continent during the winter there which is the summer here and i decided not to go because i was sick of my rochester new york winter and didn't want to miss baseball season and now it's one of the biggest regrets i have because i think it would have been really cool to go even though i wouldn't have seen the sun for three months and this is my uh, short antarctica poem antarctica what hollow songs might the silence make what howls inside the endless engine of the wind in the mind's eye a penguin writes itself over the blackness of the page but it's winter now the ink has spilled the stars scattered on the floor that is my short poem antarctica for the prompt this week and here is megan's poem also a place that i would love to go and we're gonna to have to go here and this is the winchester mystery house And I've wanted to go to the Winchester Mystery House since I was... um, Actually, it was my friend, Eric Campbell, who you've seen on the show. When I moved across country to California, I was driving across country. And um, Eric, when I talked to him before I left, I think, said, uh, you got to stop at the Winchester Mystery House. And I said, okay. (laughs) And I looked it up and it's really a cool place. I never did, though. I didn't have time. And uh, And then me and Megan have always wanted to go. And we drive past that area in San Jose, California on our way up to Bend, Oregon for uh, family summer vacations all the time, but we've never stopped either. And, and if you don't know the Winchester mystery house is, um, the, the woman's the fortune of the Winchester rifle. Um, the, the legend is that she, um, was sort of haunted by the ghosts of all the people that the rifle had killed. And so she had to build this elaborate maze of a house to keep the ghosts from finding her. She was, you know, um, and this is Megan's, Megan's poem here, and she has a big epigram from WinchesterMysteryHouse.com. The Winchester Mystery House is an architectural wonder and historic landmark in San Jose, California, that was once the personal residence of Sarah Lockwood Party, Winchester. Tragedy befell Sarah. Her infant daughter died of childhood illness, and a few years later her husband was taken from her by tuberculosis. Shortly after her husband's death, Sarah bought an eight-room farmhouse and began what could only be described as the world's longest home renovation, stopping only when she passed on September 5th, 1922. It's actually a hundred years ago now. Um, And here we go. This is the Winchester Mystery House, Megan's poem. When the baby dies, it's the ending and the beginning of every story. What house is big enough to contain an empty crib? When what breaks shatters again, what you build, you build forever. Ten windows become ten thousand, knobs multiply like stars, an orchestra of hammers and curses becomes a lullaby. Nothing like the soft song she once sang her daughter. Sometimes at night, if the wind gets quiet, she swears she can hear the walls breathe. And that is the Winchester Mystery House, Megan's poem for this week. Now let's see what you all have. Um let's see, we have um a oh goodness, we have uh Dick Westheimer's here, Jerry Stephenson, uh, Nivy, uh, let's see, Lisa Allison, Mike Bells, Ted Guevara, Patricia Casey, um, her first time using Skype. We'll get to her. Um one thing I should mention, um oh and Ted Govera's here on Skype too, so we'll see if that works. One thing I should mention that if you call in, no matter which way that we uh we talk on the phone, there's a delay. So make sure that you both turn off or mute your stream that you're watching this on now and just talk to me through the phone or Skype. And also have the poem in front of you ready to read because you can't read it off the screen. It won't be at the same time. Um, you, you, you know, you'll be like 30 seconds ahead, so it doesn't make any sense. So let's go to our first caller. I think we did Dick Westheimer last last time. So let's do him first this time. And then we'll do Nivy since it's, it's late in India. And then we'll uh, move through from there. Hey,. great to see you. how are you doing today?
7: Hey, Tim, I'm doing great. Thanks for the interview today. That was a little uh challenge you gave all of us and uh, <laughs> it
0: was It was a bit of a challenge for me, and um I hope I don't get canceled just for <laughs> having him on, but we'll see how it goes um, well
7: you know it it's a it's a it's an interesting and and i think important conversation not not that I agreed with everything that Grant said, but I'm really grateful to like engage in that conversation.
0: Yeah. I mean, that the thing is that I'm drawn to different opinions. I like to hear them. I like to be challenged and think, you know, and I think uh, I worry about, um, you know, only, you know, talking to people we agree with is, is difficult for, for, yeah, well, for, as far as your mental development or something like that.
7: I, I, I find that for myself, if the poet who started the poem agrees with the poet who finished the poem, it's probably not a great poem.
0: Oh, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so, what did you want to share? We have, I think, we have two poems that you have, right?
7: Yeah. So, I have my, I, I sent a new draft of my "Poets Respond" poem, and I have a, a Nivedita inspired um, uh, prompt poem, if there's time.
0: Excellent. Sure. So, you want to do the PR poem first?
7: Uh sure. Okay. Uh, and it's called uh, "The New Gifts of Epiphany." And just uh, sort of briefly on the process, uh, a friend of mine and I were talking, and I asked him, like. Just like, how do you write a political poem? And he says, "I have no idea. It's just they turn out to be political poems and uh, then he started talking about um well he was thinking about epiphany the um the Catholic celebration of the three kings busting into the manger and um and uh, uh, is always on January sixth
0: mm-hmm.
7: and i I wrote a really bad poem. That and then the next day, I read that Sidney Poitier had died, mm-hmm. and I started writing about that. And then I threw the poems together, and this is this yeah. is what yeah. resulted. And I've been reading. Um, where is it? I've been reading the book, uh, the sort of the the guide of the poet you had on a few weeks ago. I dropped the forty dollars on it. Oh, Talk- yeah. <laughs> <sighs> uh, but but I'm interested in his notion of how you, of braiding. Mm-hmm. So. This is my first sort of like after reading. It's a great technique. So let's see
0: how, how it goes here.
7: Okay. So the new gifts of Epiphany. 365 days before Sidney Poitier died, I gaped at the TV screen as white doves swept the air between the camera's lens and the hordes who stormed the Capitol. In churches nearby, the faithful knelt for Epiphany praised their three kings who, crowned in gold and garbed in silken robes, shouldered past ragged shepherds, stood above a baby in a manger, bestowed kingly gifts on an infant who wanted nothing more than to nuzzle hungry into his mother's breast. Sidney P., as leading man in this scene, would have spread his arms over that babe, shooed away the kings, and hummed lullabies with the shepherds. In the scene filmed in D.C., he'd have stood before the Capitol, held a mirror to the marauders' garments, asked the MAGA men to consider the lilies of the field, would have then spun stories of real revolution, where blackness became beauty in this land of white-hot shame, where an itinerant carpenter could preach wordless beatitudes to stone throwers. He would then move on from both the crowded barn in the seething streets. Sing amen about the sleeping baby, amen about the marching men, amen, amen, amen. Sing it over and over and over, even as the song was drowned out by the roaring. And here, a year later, I realized that the doves I saw were not doves. They were gulls, scrounging the scraps the other scavengers left. Their muse and calls reminded me that after democracy dies, after Sidney P. is forgotten and that his chapel dust, the kings and keepers will still have their perfumes and gold to trade for favors, and the rest of us will have what the gulls leave behind.
0: Yeah, that's a very cool braid. I, I love that braid style. I think it just, you know, bringing things together like that really makes poems really interesting. And so uh, cool to see you working on that form.
7: Yeah. Well some someday someday I'll 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 nail it where you know, I love in his poems and I forget his name now, how they sort of weave and you that's don't David know. Kirby it's again, yeah. David, that you have just left one strand and entered another that you're just sort of taken off guard. So uh this uh this um prompt poem was uh it it, it is one of these poems that's uh recursively gone back and forth between being a poem and a song lyric and back and forth and it has suffered because of it it's sing-songy you will see because i extracted it back out of the song lyric for this but uh there's a reveal leaving eden if there is one place i could visit the one place i'd want to be would be in eden Underneath that lovely fruiting apple tree, a naked Eve and a naked me, we'd lounge in luscious reverie and breathe the sweet spring Eden air underneath that apple tree. But life in Eden's so slow and dull. There isn't much to do. There must be more than this easy life. But I can't see it. I don't have a clue. Just wandering round so aimlessly and lazing by the stream, wanting more, but not so sure what just what more would be. Then a serpent sauntered by with a wily scheme. He winked at me. I winked at him, and we began to dream. How can I get out of here? He tells me his grand plan. Call me dumb or insecure. I just didn't understand. He wanted me to walk away, to leave Miss Eve behind. I looked at her and back at him. It wasn't hard to decide. Eve was happy on her own, which made me kind of sad. So I walked off with my serpent friend and asked him what he had. He handed me an apple. It was his way to capture me. It was an iPhone 13 plus fresh from the factory life in Eden was so damn boring now I see it and last I've got so much more to do Twitter TikTok Facebook I can't leave it and she can't see it she doesn't have a clue I was complete with my new phone and social media I'd no need to explore Eden I was done with love suddenly the scenery changed. It turned from lush to gray. Then a stage crew bustled in and hauled it all away. And for you believers who blame this mess on Eve, it was me, your God, told not to do this deed.
0: Oh, excellent. I love the rhymes there, Richard. That was great. And a great, great message, too, from that that poem, for sure.
7: Thanks, Tim. Good to see you. Yep,
0: always good to see you. Thanks, Richard. Have a Thanks. good Sunday. Thanks
7: for all you do. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. So Richard Westheimer with uh, two poems. The last one was leaving Eden from the prompt. Okay, we'll do Nivy and then we'll uh we'll do some other people. Let's call up Nivy next. Good evening, Nivy. How are you doing today?
5: Hey Tim. I'm doing great, thank you. How about
0: you? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a good morning. Interesting uh interesting episode this week.
5: Very quite different <laughs> than usual, but interesting nonetheless.
0: So uh, so what did you have that you would like to share with us?
5: Um, as usual, I have both poems, a prompt and a new story, but these are slightly hurriedly written because I flew back from Chennai to Delhi only today, so it was sort of last minute rush to oh, get
0: them. Oh, really? It done. Well, I'm glad he had a safe travel from, from there on the, on the flight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have, uh, let's see, I have the uh, Poet's Respond poem up first. Uh, Say it with sheep flock forms. sir. So, oh, I saw this. Yeah, this uh, Say It With Sheep. Flock forms syringe shape in COVID jab push. So explain <laughs> explain this a little bit and we'll see if I can find a picture.
5: So basically, uh, it's Europe has one of the lowest vaccination rates, especially Germany. So there were these couple of farmers who decided to, you know, apparently people love sheep and they think that sheep has a positive effect on people. So they decided to use sheep to send across the message about the importance of getting the COVID vaccine so they placed breadcrumbs on the ground for where each sheep had to stand, and well, sheep where one sheep goes, the others follow. So I think they all just followed and made a syringe, and the entire scene was filmed by a drone, which which I think was just something weird and absurd, but something that well, if it helps people get their vaccine shots, then by all means. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I saw that picture. I was wondering how um, how they got the sheep to do that. So I'm glad I'm glad for the bread explanation crumbs. too. Yeah, breadcrumbs would do it. <laughs> so I've never seen that before. I wonder if it's something they do, sheep sheep art. I mean, you could do that for any kind of as symbol or anything. That's kind of cool.
5: <laughs> I just wonder, I mean, okay, the first row of sheep have gone, but then wouldn't they have finished the bread by then I and mean, then why would they still wait there for the others to come um, back? Be- as long I'm, as they stood.
0: I'd imagine you have to put a lot of bread down <laughs> to keep them eating, you know, like like a wheelbarrow's full of bread. Um, but very interesting. So, so let's hear this poem, uh, Will You or Won't You.
5: Will you or won't you? The cases are rising by the day. Omicron is here and ready to play. But hey, let's not get carried away and keep thinking in shades of deepening gray. Let's move away from this depressing note and instead think of something sweet like baby lambs and goats. Now that we're on the topic, I have something to share, I a news like this you would never have heard, I swear. Like Hansel and Gretel, remember, the duo that followed the trail of bread to lead them back home by showing them the road ahead? Well, that's exactly what we have here, a farmer and his flock, showing us the way clear. With breadcrumbs the farmer arranged his flock of sheep into a shape reminiscent of something we all now see, even in our sleep. Even the sheep are telling us we need to get trapped before the virus causes us all to get entrapped.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. A fun one as always, and then you had another one too. So, so this
8: this Northern the Northern Lights and Christmas,
5: yeah. The prompt poem, and it's about this place called Rovaniemi. It's in the Finnish Lapland. I may be butchering the name; I don't know, but it's it's basically the official home of Santa Claus. Like they even have a website. And it it's just one of the most magical places I've ever seen. And I think the Northern Lights is something, but then seeing it in a place that's called as a winter wonderland is is something totally different. And when you look at the pictures on the website, it's 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 like a scene straight out of a fairy tale, for want of a better word. I mean, so I just wanted to capture that 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 happy, more the happy emotions that we feel. It's Christmas, and then you also get to witness the beauty of nature, and there's, there's, there's literally nothing better than that. So this is basically what I imagine the scene would look like, having never been there. But if I go there, and if it's like this, I will definitely get back to you. And, you know, it did live up to <laughs> the expectations I that yeah, I had well, I, put well, I here. Hope
0: you, I hope you get to go. Uh, let's hear the poem.
5: Fingers crossed. <laughs> Northern Lights in a Christmas Wonderland. Aurora Polaris and the signs of nuclear collision with the Earth. Uh, never mind, it's magic. Snowflakes and wispy green lights flit through the sky, while inside a thousand sparkling lights, like the iridescent shimmer of butterfly wings, flicker in the perpetual twilight glow. And there's a man in a jolly red suit trudging through the snow, a smile on his face, while on him trains a glimmering halo of pink and purple in the pastures out back, plants a hundred reindeer munching on wild berries, while the kitchen staff, are they also elves, keep the hot cocoa and marshmallows coming. This magical finished spot resonates with the magic of Christmas, spring and summer and autumn and winter. But don't you think the charm and magic truly come alive when riding a sleigh pulled by reindeer and being gently showered by snowflakes? that luminous under the aurora borealis.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, we saw the photos too. It really does look like a beautiful place. Uh, so hope, hope maybe we can all get to go there sometime. That'd be great. I know,
5: hopefully, hopefully, all of us will be able to visit something as magical as this. I mean, it's the best of both worlds. Who doesn't love Christmas and who doesn't want to see the Northern Lights yeah. of one stone?
0: For sure. I've never seen them and um, I'd, I'd love to. Maybe. Well take care Always a pleasure talking to you Nivy uh, Thank to see you, you Tim It's lovely
5: talking to you Have a great Sunday yep. bye, bye,
0: bye Bye. That was Nivy DeKarthic With two poems Northern Lights and a Christmas Wonderland And um, the other one about the sheep Let's go next to Let's try Patricia Casey Hey Patricia I hear you And I think uh, if you push the uh, camera button You'll come in
9: Okay, I just have to mute you. Let's see. Okay. Let's see. Oh,
0: there you come. Well, let me get you get you resized on the screen here. It's great to see. you. I'm so glad you could join us today. And and in a, you called in before, but uh, never never in in video form.
9: Oh, I've never called in. Oh, you haven't. I thought you did. I've been thinking of somebody else. So okay. I've never read it. I've never read a poem out loud to anybody.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm so glad to be the first time for you. So where are you calling from then, first of all?
9: Spencerport, right near where you grew up, Rochester.
0: Uh, Yeah, I was in Greece. The next town over is where I actually grew up. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, Just north of me. Yeah, and my aunt and uncle still live up there in in Spencerport. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what poem did you want to share?
9: It's called Near Death Experience. And I wrote this when I was having writer's block. And I started looking for words to help me through my writer's block. And this is what came out.
0: Well, excellent. Let's hear it. I have it ready for everybody at home. Go ahead.
9: Okay. Near-death experience. Encapsulating suffocated prose, entrapped within an unimagined mind. Faint characters and plot schemes juxtapose incapable of stirring, thoughts resigned. Her coffin grips its captivated hold as author hangs on uncreative cross, a jilted magnum opus left untold, creative ebb, a devastating loss. The hodoscope finds enigmatic scenes are mixing up a convoluted mess, as thinning plot is scrapped to smithereens. By happenstance, it starts to coalesce. Love's consequential plot extrapolates, imaginations, liaison, elates.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that was a really cool poem. I love the rhymes again. It's really cool to hear rhyming poetry, which doesn't come in very often. Um, Near-death experience. Thanks so much. I'm so glad you could join us, Patricia.
9: Thank you, Tim. Yeah,
0: have a good day. You too. uh, Patricia Casey with Near-death experience. And let's go to... um, Kimberly McNeil, who, um, I, again, I think, in my recollection, Kimberly's had poems she's shared before, but never on, on Skype, so we'll see. Hmm. Well, Kimberly's not answering. We'll try again in a little bit. We'll circle back there. Let's go to Philip Stern. Hello. Hey, Philip. How are you doing today?
10: Good. Let me mute you.
0: Yeah, no problem. Okay. So, Hi. Yeah, how you doing?
10: Uh, good, good. Uh, my wife may may have had COVID, we're not sure, but uh, she did test negative, so we're just oh. not sure. But otherwise, things are good.
0: That's good. How's How's your symptoms? Is she feeling okay?
10: Yes, yeah. She had something, some sort, maybe it was a flu, who knows.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there's a lot going around, and a lot of it's the Omicron. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so, But we,
10: um, you know, we played it with caution, that's all
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to do it So you have two short poems, I think, right? I have three haikus Oh, okay, I only see uh, two, but you can just read the third I guess I have rattlecast and end still Let's see Oh my goodness, I think I sent you the wrong thing, an older version Okay, well, we can just listen if you want to just read them Since they're short, but read them twice since they're haiku
10: Oh, okay. All right. The first one is re- is in response to the prompt. Um, and I think that it's, you know, pretty self-explanatory. I cannot visit that Milwaukee house. The grandson I've never seen. Virus clogs
0: the air. Mm-hmm. That's a great one. Yeah. Read it again because it's a haiku.
10: Okay. I cannot visit that Milwaukee house. The grandson I've never seen virus clogs the air. Yeah, I like that. Okay, and then the next one. Okay. Uh, the next one is um, something I just wrote last night, and um, but it's basically, uh, you know, about writing poetry after a rattle cast. That's the title, after a rattle cast. No good strip mining. Deep in the psyche, I scrape at some silver load.
0: <laughs> that's great.
10: Yeah, that's how I feel. You know, it's uh, your sessions really are inspiring. You know, they do prompt uh, better stuff. I think, or at least the attempt to write better stuff. That's you know, that's what this poem's.
0: Yeah, well, I'm so glad to hear and, that. That's always the goal. And and what's the third one?
10: Uh, the third one is uh, actually. Something I keep—the very first poem I read on Ralph class a few months ago—was in response to the Portman Mateau prompt. Oh
0: yeah, you
10: know, which spoke to me because I, you know, I love wordplay. Uh, but one of those poems, I, I just was never happy with the ending, and I keep trying. <laughs> so this is the latest iteration, and uh, it, it suddenly occurred to me this can stand on its own as a, uh, uh, you know, as a haiku. Oh, cool! It's called "And Still, in Years of Darkness." And still, in years of darkness, poets write glowworms. Playbees are born every day, when people
0: belive. Interesting. And still, in the year of darkness, very good. Thanks for sharing that, Philip. All right. Thanks for. I'm sorry about
10: send, not sending it to you. Uh,
0: <laughs> That's okay. We have a properly. Sort of a, a different, slightly older version of the and still poem. Uh, But thanks. It's just always a pleasure hearing your voice. Okay. Likewise, Tim. Take care and stay stay healthy too. And and best wishes to your wife. Oh,
10: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Bye. Bye. That's Philip Stern with Three Haiku. Let's go to uh, Lisa Allison next. And she has a link. Let me make sure I can open it first. Okay. Let's go to Lisa Allison. She's got two poems here from uh, One Art Poetry. Hey, Lisa, how are you doing today? Hey, good, Tim. How are you? Great. It's great to see you. I don't know if you've ever been on Skype. Weren't you on phone last time, I think?
11: I was. I was on phone last time.
0: Yeah, so it's very cool to see you. I'm glad we could uh, have your face, too. So what do you have that you would like to share with us?
11: Uh, I have got two poems that I sent you that were published in One Art recently. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I have and, it up the link here, and it's oneartpoetry.com. dot com.
11: Yes, so that's a publication because we talked about different publications today and last week. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I think they've got about a twelve percent acceptance rate. A very very personable editor, Mark Danowski. I think his name is. Yeah, and so,
0: yeah. I've, I've had interactions with him. He's a really good guy.
11: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so is there anything you want to say about these poems before you read them, or do you want to just jump right um,
11: in? After listening to some of the poems today, I feel like these are slightly co-indulgent in that I was, you know, diving into my mood. There's no real wisdom in the poems, but I thought they're two short poems, so I'll share them. Yeah, it's great. Let's go ahead. <clears> okay, <throat> just fine. For clean up. The soil brown and soft is a fresh grave. I plant clone in my rock garden. Sending it to sleep for two seasons. Press Ativan bulbs three inches deep down the throat of a lost foxglove. My thumbs dissolve into dust. Tucking the rake back in the shed, I add instructions on how to breathe. Pour a cold glass of weed killer. Dead leaves still clinging to my ankles.
0: Great image in that fall cleanup. And then the other one is corsage. Go ahead with that one too.
11: Corsage. My lover brings me a dandelion on a wire stem, pokes the sharp end through my skin to pin it on my breast. It slips into my body, wraps my false ribs in its long metal roots, spilling its milky juice in my synovial fluid. I want to tell him it hurts to love, but puffballs fall from my mouth, spreading his greedy seed to the world each time I exhale.
0: Oh, I love that, too. Both those poems are just full of great images, corsage and uh, fall cleanup. Thanks for sharing both of those, Lisa. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Okay, that was Lisa Allison once again. And the journal I should mention, again, was uh, One Art, which I'll put on screen. Oops, here. Come on. There we go. This is One Art, a journal of poetry, and you can find it at oneartpoetry.com. Um, This is the About page. It says, um, uh, One Art aims to publish poetry that adds value to the life of our readers. Um, A poem must not only be good, it must be lasting. Ask yourself what poems you return to again and again. Those are the poems we want to share with the world. And so check that out at uh, oneartpoetry.com. And find Lisa's poems there if you want to read them again. So let's go to... um, Let's go to... Mike Bales. We usually do Mike Bales toward the end. Let's do him a little earlier. Even though it's kind of late, though, with all the delays on this episode. Hey, Mike, how are you doing today?
12: Pretty good. Uh, What he was talking about, I might be a little bit too tight up to write. The car's down, and it takes a long time to bus to and from work. Oh, yeah, that would be... For a couple weeks.
0: Yeah. Well, at least the the bus, does it give you any time to uh, read and, and sort of think about poems on the bus?
12: Oh, I... I am I let my mind drift, and as a flagger, I mentally composed a lot of stuff. I was standing hours along the road. Uh-huh. You know, I I might see something. So um, this is out of the Quad Cities. Is my poem's a, a virtual journey out of the Quad Cities to France. A friend during college said I went to Europe all around and said I ought to go, but I never quite had the money.
13: Uh-huh.
12: And I figure, when I think about it, I figure if I went somewhere, I'd go to France, and this has to do with Hemingway, the expatriates. I remember in reading A Movable Feast, one scene in the book that was pretty neat is when they're all excited when F. Scott's Fitzgerald book got published The Great Gatsby. That was a neat moment in the book. Friends mm-hmm. and I gathered and relived it, like when we did readings in downtown Davenport and we went to a bar after afterwards as across the alley and I always called it our Left bank.
0: Oh, very cool.
12: <laughs> um, this is my movable feast. The epigram is if you were lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you. For Paris is a movable feast. And this is my movable feast. It's like three poems in one when I look at it, but I'll read the entire thing. Okay. My movable feast. I want to find myself among poets and writers, artists and lovers on the left side of the Seine. I want to lose myself in the swells of jazz, filling outdoor cafes along the sidewalks. I want to dance with the ghosts of the expatriates as they celebrate poem and verse. I want to drink their wine as if Hemingway, Stein, Pound and Fitzgerald in their youth still gather, as if a swirl of philosophy still fills the air. What joy. I want to write in a simple place free where passion burns with little to lose. I want to share a heartfelt story as it lives beyond its time and place.
0: Excellent. Me too. Thanks thanks for sharing that, Mike. Um, that was my Moveable Okay, feast. thanks. Yeah, yeah, always a pleasure. Alright, bye. Bye. It's Mike Bales with my movable feast. Uh, let's call up Ted Guevara. I think Ted has a. Uh, Skype for the first time. Hey, Ted, how you doing?
6: Hey, Deb. Um, I'm okay. I can't,
0: I can't see if you want to click the camera button so you can come on camera, but you don't have to if you don't want to either. No, it's okay. Okay, so uh, what did you uh, want to share with us, Ted? It's great to have you on the phone.
6: Yeah, you do. Um... First of all, thank you for all the readings over two months, you know?
0: Yeah, it's, it's always my pleasure. I'm so glad you could share poems regularly. I appreciate it. And this this poem is uh, Chica. Um, yeah, Chica
6: is about Costa Rica. Ah, okay. I've been there twice, you know, like uh, within four years. Oh, yeah? And the first time I went there, I met these Girl or Chica, uh-huh. and she happens to be a bartender. Well, cool. And the I got on... I went back, I couldn't find her anymore. Ah,
0: uh, well, so on screen? He... So go
6: ahead and, and read it whenever you're ready, Ted. Okay, yeah, Chica, Chica on Twitter, please tell you for me. I hear her like a painting, her fingers move. From black keys to white keys and all the color dance above. Like the spewing sound meant to move hips and giggle uniformity. Ah, the pulsating of my love, not with me.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. I love the descriptions there, the fingers moving from black keys to white keys, all the colors dance around. Very great. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. You're welcome. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you soon.
6: Okay. Bye. Okay. Thanks.
0: That was a Ted Govera with Chica from um, the prompt poem this week. And uh, let's go with um, next. Let's call it Spartacus. I think it's getting pretty late over there in the UK, if that's where Spartacus is. Hello. Hey, Spartacus. How are you doing today?
13: I'm doing well. And you, Tim?
0: I'm doing great. It's great to see you. Uh, so what do you have that you would like to share?
13: I've got a poem about Cornwall.
0: Cornwall. And it's ah. called
13: Holidays for Solo Traveler. And I've got some pictures that I think that they are better than the poem.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I have both up. I'll show everybody. I I have the poem. I'll show uh, I'll show them the picture as you after you read it. So why don't you go ahead?
13: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, holidays for solo travelers. If only I was a solo traveller trapped in the maze of Glendurgan Gardens in Cornwall. Two telephone engineers on ladders would give me directions to find the lost gardens of Helligan. Then I would stay in a guest house in a chatty forest. On the wall of the room, a small anchor would replace a painting. Wishing sailors to find their harbour away from storms, in a public sea that is encircled by private land. Before I find myself in St. Ives.
0: Excellent. And then here's the poem. This is a lost garden of Heligan, and um, oops, let me see. So, uh, oh wow, look at that photograph. That's so yeah, fascinating. So how was that done?
13: Yeah, I did that during summer holidays. Uh huh. Um so I went almost everywhere in Cornwall. Uh-huh. So I was really impressed with it. Wow. And I just wanted to share these pictures. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. Thanks for sharing that. And then we have um, the gardens too. The um, Glendig Garden. Oh, wow, look at that. The maze. That is really neat. And then uh, Tintagel, Yeah, beautiful place there. And then the yeah. sculpture at the end, St. Ives. Wow, so many photos. These are really cool. I'm so glad you could share these Spartacus. Yeah.
13: Thanks, Tim, for
0: tonight. Yeah, it's always a pleasure and, and great to great to see you.
13: Perfect. Nice to see you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. That was Spartacus Anagnostris with uh, his poem um, Holidays for Solo Traveler. And we do know that Spartacus travels a lot. It's always great to hear where he is. Um, you know, it's always different places, it seems. Um, so good talking to you, Spartacus. Let's try Kimberly McNeil again, see if we can get that to work. And Kimberly has a photo for us as well. Well, the ringer must not be on or something. It says Kimberly's there, but there's no answer. So I'll I'll just read this um, later. Maybe I'll try one more time. Um, Let's see. There's what I'll do. I'll say, let me know if you're back. And then um, I'll try again. If not, I'll just read the poem um, a little later. Who else do we have to call up? Oh, Bev Wendell-Atherstone. Let's call up Bev. Hello. Hey, Bev. How are you doing today?
8: Great. How are you? That was a great, great discussion today.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. It was sort of a, a, a lively discussion for sure. Um, so, yeah. so what did you want to share with us?
8: I have two poems, one responding to the prompt uh-huh. and one responding to the news.
0: Okay, cool. I think I have a, a dream comes true to see the Taj Mahal, which yeah, that's must be for the, prompt. the prompt. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Is there anything you want to say about it or do you want to jump right in?
8: I I think it's kind of explanatory. We lived in India over fifty years ago.
0: Oh wow, really? And then we had
8: to leave. Mm-hmm. Then we left and then then we went back. We've been back a few times. So This tells about my dream. My wish. (laughs) A dream comes true to see the Taj Mahal. Crimson hints of sari silks scud across the sky as the day gives way to the moon's caress. Across a dome firm as a nuptial breast her opalescent tomb outshines the full-faced orb. I longed to see this 17th century bejeweled crown, the first and most exquisite Mughal woman's mausoleum of love declared by Emperor Shah Jahan for Mumtaz Mahal, his favorite spouse. After birthing, her 14th child caused her demise. The Shah breathed new life into Mughal architecture replacing dull, muted hues with white, iridescent marble, creating for his mumtaz an earthly, translucent paradise. We, standing hand in hand, watched our train depart without us for Agra. I, pale from birthing, too frail for our pilgrimage, was despondent. My husband caught my tears in his promise. We shall return. Twenty years had passed when at last we walked, enchanted beneath the fluted archways in Agra, dazzled by Mumtaz Mahal's diaphanous tomb, mirrored perfectly in the garden river of and for eternity. In the vaulted arches, we could hear their perfect love reverberating, In the delicate blossoms of lapis lazuli, we could smell her perfume. In the inlaid vines of malachite and turquoise, we could watch their lives entwine. While these ancient lovers lie forever in their glowing sarcophagi.
0: Excellent. I love that line. My husband caught my tears in his promise. That's great. And that was once again a dream comes true to see the Taj Mahal. Thanks for sharing that, Bev. And then you have another one too.
8: Yes. <clears throat> and this was in relation to um, the ennui of our times.
0: Uh, yeah, it definitely. It's called is, No One like, Visits. Yeah, so I, I'm pulling up this article um, <laughs> The Optimist Daily Guide to Unlanguishing Ideas on How to Reconnect to Thriving. That was the article you included. You want to explain what this was? Well, this is just about how. <clears throat>
8: How we can um protect ourselves and bring ourselves out of the languishing and ennui of uh constantly staying home and not being in touch with our loved ones
0: mm-hmm. yeah, for sure it's, been, it's almost two years now for the pandemic it's tough to it's a long time
8: it's a very long time, so I caught myself in this space and thought I'd write about it. No one visits my bra sits in the wash unsorted photos wait on the couch christmas tree needles are tracked all around the house the vacuum sits idle besides books i have read outside it's minus 30 degrees celsius the wind chill i dread i put on my boots scarf coat and my new toque to rake the solar panels Of today's snow dump. The cats peer from their warm garage perch. My actions convince them that humans are indeed nuts. Later inside with a hot cup of Earl Grey tea, I'm cozy surrounded by aromas of my husband's ham hocks and bean stew.
0: Yeah, that was a great poem too. No one visits. Thanks, Bev. Uh, where are you? That it's thirty degrees, minus thirty degrees Celsius.
8: Uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, and today we're having a chinook. That's the warm winds coming off the uh, eastern slopes of uh-huh. the of oh, the Rockies. Minus
12: now
8: it was um, this morning. It was uh, I mean, what? This <laughs> morning it was zero degrees. Oh, wow. And now oh, yeah. it's and then it went down to minus 21 again. And now it's going up to plus one. <laughs>
0: <Well, glad, laughs> i glad it's warming up a little bit for you. Uh, that sounds very cold, a, Dev. Yeah. <laughs>
8: yeah. It's a roller coaster. Thank yeah. you so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And stay warm.
8: Bye.
0: Bye. It was Wendell Atherstone with uh, No One Visits and A Dream Comes True to See the Taj Mahal. Let's see. Do I have anyone else to call? Oh, Jerry Stephenson. Sorry, Jerry. I almost missed you at the very bottom there. And Jerry's got two poems for us. Jim. Hey, Jerry. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good.
14: I'm doing good. I'm thrilled. Desmond Latherstone an old friend of mine from Lethbridge.
0: Ah, well, it must be, uh, be cold where you are, too. I think I hear I'm myself in the good. background. Do you want to mute that?
14: Not anymore. I've extinguished you, ah, okay. No problem.
0: No problem. <laughs> yeah,
14: that's where I am, no, we're uh, we're well plus nine today. I live oh. in the Gulf Islands off the, the west coast. Ah, but we got a foot and a half of snow.
0: Oh wow, that's a good. They amount. shut
14: the island down. Yeah, they shut it right down. The schools, the stores, everything. <laughs> so, uh, but,
0: so, yeah. So I have uh, in Dublin, Fair City, the first poem I have up. Do you want to do that one?
14: Yes. I do. You know, I was thinking where I would go and how I could get there and all this other stuff, and I got overwhelmed Uh because of Molly Malone walking down the aisles and the streets with pushing your cart, right? Uh So I thought, I'd like to go to Dublin, but open up your imagination. So if you're ready, in Dublin, Fair City, Mr. Peabody, fire up the way back machine. Sherman, attention please. We'll lunch in Dublin this day. To invite a guest important that's right. So, Mr. P, logically keen, time is now of the essence. Though, with you, it does not matter. First host, first to be gathered be one lettered Cohen. As a poet well-known, well known will put the others at ease. For the location is most common, as where that's once they belonged. Peabody, muddle up the water of time. It's not where we attend, it's the company we bend, elbows to rub, table, round this table, time to be ours, guests are fabled, more than the people, not just the place or the space. Sherman, equations please, alien the poets from similar times, let verse rhyme and thoughts fly, clock standing stopped by. Oscar Wilde will lead the charge. James Joyce, and now with Yeats, Catherine Tyne to celebrate. Then from across the Irish Sea, Dylan Thomas to join our company. A toast of fine Irish whiskey. The poets and the place, the quest for me.
0: Excellent. Thanks for sharing that, Jerry. Uh, you know, way to take it one You're step farther right. and move through time as well as space. That is very fun. And uh, <laughs> Good. And you have another film too, Turret House.
14: Yes, I do. We are up in... Uh, Stewart, B.C., right next to Hyder, Alaska. Uh-huh. Our daughter lives there, huh. and they have all these old houses, and some of them are crumbling down. That mm-hmm. turret house just stole my imagination. I've seen it for several years. It was buried in snow. You just see it peeking out at you. And I just got—we were sitting here. I got—I got permission to use the picture, but I don't have it handy to show it. But anyway, so that's going to be for another adventure. Turret House, whether a lost memory from past life or a haunting yet to receive, Turret House plays with me. Its unexpected present awaits, a mix of metaphors to my soul. Hence, I feel cast in its play. Time set, time lost, timely. Resides in my clock. Reserves me a performance. Resurrects a starring role. Combined with utter terror. I know not its address. I know it lives. I know it has breath.
0: Excellent. That was Turret House. And uh, is that something that if I look it up, I could find? Or is that something Yeah.
14: I, I gave it the name a couple of years ago. It's <laughs> okay. been abandoned. And, and every time I see it, it just strikes my imagination. So I think I'm going to probably end up doing a series of poems on Stuart in some of these locations. It just blew me away.
0: Very cool. Well, when you do, share a poem and then show us a picture, too.
14: I definitely will. Tim, thank you so much for everything, and all the best of the New Year's to you and all of yours.
0: Yeah, same to you, Jerry. And uh, and Kim for all that snow, too.
14: I will. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Take care now. Bye-bye.
0: It was Jerry Stephenson with a turret house. Okay, yeah. Okay, so let's go to the uh, psyche really quick. And this week's article that I saw is right here on the screen. This is um, sort of a downer type story, a little bit. Sorry about that, but it is an important thing to uh, to be in the in the zeitgeist during the discussion. And uh this is the article this is from this is from uh where was it um I think it was Washington University but I'm not seeing oh George Washington University here yeah but so the headline here is nearly 2 million children worldwide develop asthma as a result of breathing in traffic related pollution and so this was the first study to look at how much um you know to to quantify the effect of um um, NO2 nitrogen dioxide gas is a pollutant on um the the rate of asthma in certain places. So the more the more of this car exhaust you have, the more asthma you have. And it showed this very clear connection and calculated the amount of excess deaths worldwide. So when we talk about things like climate change, um, you know, this is uh the air pollution is a big problem as well that needs to be remembered. And so that is my my article. And here is the who um about it driving down into the thickening smog i make driving down into the thickening smog i make that is my psyche today imagining you know i live in the mountains as we always mention and um it's really stark driving down toward la um you can see how much you know just this like shroud of brownness even though it's much better than it used to be apparently and um you see that and you know you're driving through it, and you know people are living down there and um and I'm contributing to it as well although my Outback is a is a partial zero emission vehicle so um at least there's that but that's you know partial is uh, a <laughs> is relative term I think so that was your Saiku for this week and your or your uh, prop for next week it's going to be this, write an echo verse poem by repeating the end syllable of each line, either verbatim or as a rhythm or slant rhyme. Um, Robert Lee Brewer offers excellent examples of this form on the Writer's Digest w- website. So it's an echo verse poem. You repeat the end syllable of each line, either verbatim or as a rhyme or slant rhyme. Um, so it's kind of like an AAAA poem, I believe. But we'll look it up and we'll try to do it, an echo verse poem. And that is your prompt for next week. And the guest for next week is going to be uh, Marcella Shulak. Uh, Marcella, remember, was the guest on Rattlecast like 110 or something um, over the summer. And we meant to talk about both her books. She's just prolific. And we meant to talk about both her books and translation. She has a whole bunch of books in translation. and um, And we didn't have time to talk about the translations. So we said we'd have her on back again. And this is the, again, we're going to have Marcia Shulek again. She was a great guest. Uh, we're going to talk about all the different poets um, from around the world she's translated and the differences between poetry's sort of feel in different languages, things like that should be a really interesting show, especially as we have a tribute to translation um, is the fall issue coming up. And there's a deadline of April 15th for any translators who want to share poems. So it sort of ties in with that a little bit. And that's going to be Rattlecast number 127, Sunday, January 16th at the regular time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great rest of your Sunday in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.